Morris is in the slot. Homer flanks out. Cap stumbling around. Pitches to Willie Fleming. Fleming gets almost to midfield. Except for Kelly got to him. Number 44. He's almost out on his feet there, walking around in a bit of a fog. And the BC Lions trainer, Roy Cavillan, is coming across now. It also appears that number nine, Joe Zuger, uh, risked his knees here on the sideline because he immediately came right off, and they're giving him some attention on the sideline. And the way he's shaking his head, it looks like he's in a fair amount of pain right now. Let's hope he can shake it off. Gain on the play, amounted to about five and a half yards for the midfield stripe. Fleming is being assisted off the field. He's still all wobbly like it there. Boy, he really got clobbered. November 30th. 1963 in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. In front of 36,545 fans, an incident occurs which changes the course of a league's history. It's an event which ignites a decades-long rivalry. And it's an event that cements the lore of a legend. But can one event, one moment in time, truly be this life-altering? Join us this month on Grappling with Canada as we take a deep dive look into the life and career of King Kong, Angela, Mosca. Hello everyone and to Grappling with Canada. As with each and every month, I'm your host, The Taxman, and I'm really, really looking forward to presenting this month's episode to each and every one of you, as not only are we kicking off the start of summer, but we're also kicking off the start of the CFL season, which I'm really looking forward to. I know a lot of my fellow Canadians are as well, and uh, I think that this episode is almost the perfect lead-in that Grappling with Canada could possibly pick uh, to help us kick off the start of the CFL season. More on that in a minute. If this is your first time to Grappling with Canada, welcome to the program. You can go in the back catalog and check out some of our earlier episodes. This season of Grappling with Canada has so far focused on, as you can tell from the intro music, some unsolved mysteries from Canadian professional wrestling history. 
uh, mysteries such as what really happened with the communist conspiracy in America with George Gordienko, as well as uh, the actual beginnings of Rowdy Roddy Piper episodes like that you can find in the archives of this program. You can also find our excellent, in my opinion, Season 1 episodes of Grappling with Canada. Uh, there are many other football-related uh, episodes as we did cover uh, Gene Kaniski, uh, Archie the Mongolian Stomper, spent some time in the CFL as well, as well as uh, Stu Hart. So go back in the back catalog and check out those episodes, as well as some incredible deep dives on other individuals such as Rhonda Singh and the madman from the Sudan, Abdul the Butcher. I just want to thank everybody for checking out last month's couple of episodes. I know it was a bit shorter than we usually do. That would be the episode on Sky Low Low. No, <laughs> that is not an inside joke, if you will, either. Uh, but it was just, uh, it was an episode that I felt needed to, uh, to be done, just kind of shed some light on one of the forgotten uh, little people wrestlers from professional wrestling history. I know there wasn't a ton of meat on the bone, but I thought uh, we uncovered some really I interesting information, and I hope that everybody was able to enjoy that one. I also want to make mention of the special episode that we released last month with Mike Rogers uh, with his two uh, volumes of Excitement in the Air, Volumes 1 and 2 of that, that are available now, as well as his new release, Katie Bar the Door, which should be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so as I hear more information on that, naturally, I will keep everybody appraised on this program. So I want to thank everybody for checking out those episodes. And once again, if this is your first time to the program, once again, I invite you to go and check out uh, the previous episodes. That's the one... Not the only good thing about this program, I will say, but one of the great things about this program is the content never grows old. Because these shows are done with the historical lens and thoroughly researched, or as thoroughly as I possibly can in each and every episode, which is probably why many of them end up in the two to four hour range. But uh, anyways... The uh, the information never gets old, never goes out of date, which is tremendous if you're uh, new to the program and want to go into the back catalog and uh, check out some programs, uh, specifically ones like the Dawn Eagle episode where we just, there's so much ground to cover, so much uh, new information that was uncovered in the process of that program specifically. Uh, Billy Two Rivers was another one, but... Just, it, it's great stuff, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of research, and a lot of tremendous guests, which you can hear on all of those programs. Tonight's episode is no different. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. If you are listening to this program, obviously you can go and check out those back catalogs on any podcasting platform like the one that you are currently listening to Um myself speak to you right now so that it can be uh good pods uh google podcasts stitcher amazon podcasts uh apple podcasts essentially wherever you buy sell trade barter or steal your favorite pro programs i especially hope that you steal this one you will find grappling with canada 
uh, while you're there, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you leave a five-star rating, very important, and a written review, I will make sure that you get a shout-out on the next available program when I see uh, that written review. Obviously, they're not instantaneous. I kind of get notified. Uh, sometimes it's weeks. Sometimes it's months after the fact. But if you leave a five-star rating and written review, I will make sure that it gets read live on the next available uh, program. It's the least I can do for all of you for taking the time to uh, leave a little rating and review of this program. You can also find the show on YouTube. YouTube.com slash C slash Six-Sided Podcast is where you can find us on there. We are scratching, clawing, and pulling our way to a 1,000 subscribers on there. So any help is appreciated on there. Uh, Usually these episodes wind up on YouTube a couple of weeks after they drop on the main podcast feed. So if you uh, go on immediately and it's not on there, don't panic. It's going up. It just takes a little bit extra time to get these programs on YouTube. I'll also invite you to come and check out our Instagram page, uh, instagram.com slash grapplingwithcanada. Uh, usually I'm posting up some uh, pictures related to the month's episode as long as some, or as well as some fun uh, projects that I'm kind of, uh, in the, in cahoots with, if you will. Uh, obviously people would have seen the classic, uh, We Save Balls t-shirt from Good Friends, uh, of the show Manscaped and the Testicular Cancer Society, uh, media blitz that was happening in April, for example. So, once again, face, or sorry, Instagram.com slash Grappling with Canada. I'm ahead of myself and talked about our Facebook, uh, page. You can go on Facebook, use that wonderful page function. Come on in and like the Grappler with Canada Facebook page. You can also come in and join the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. There's been a ton of fun discussion on there on a multitude of topics. A lot of great information, a lot of really fun historical information has been shared on there lately. And I'm really enjoying uh, seeing what everybody's posting up there. And uh, keep posting and keep the conversations going. It's been a lot of fun for myself and uh, the other historians to be going through all of this uh, really neat stuff. And it, it truly is a lot of fun. I also want to make mention that there are several ways that you can support this program because like I said, it is uh, very much historically researched in depth as much as I possibly can on each and every episode. Uh, unfortunately, that takes quite a bit of time and resources. So, if you are able to help support the program, you can look at the link tree link in the show notes of today's program and find various ways to donate to the podcast. Uh, there is direct link functions for uh, PayPal. There's also uh, the tip jar function on Good Pods, as well as you can go on to buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. And um, anything that gets donated to the show obviously goes directly back into the production, the research, uh, everything related to the general costs associated with the show. Plus, you will get a shout-out on an upcoming upcoming episode. Listen to me talk. We're going to kick this one off fun today, folks. 
Also, you can find the official merchandise store, uh, grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com. Probably there's a sale going on right now. There seems to always be uh, some sort of fun sale going on on the site. So once again, uh, grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com. Also, you can check the show note uh, link tree link for that one as well. And a friendly reminder that all of the proceeds of the classic Grappling with Canada logo t-shirt... Uh, that's the one with the Canadian flag, which is also the album artwork that you mostly see uh, related to this program. Uh, all of those proceeds are being donated directly to charity. And at the end of the year, hopefully we have a nice uh, check to present to the Children's Hospital here in friendly Winnipeg, Manitoba. Now that I'm all through with the housekeeping agenda for today... Let's start uh, getting into tonight's program. We are going to be covering King Kong Angelo Mosca. Now, this is somebody who CFL fans are very familiar with, especially, you know, my age, a little bit older. Uh, fans in Hamilton specifically would, this, he is a god essentially there, which is something that I'm going to be discussing a little bit more in-depth with one of my guests uh, in this program today. But it's a fascinating story because of how he grew up, the way that he grew up, the way that he found his way through uh, professional sports, and then into and around professional wrestling. It's one of the more intriguing stories that I think I've covered because there are so many different trajectories and so many different aspects and so many different little things that happen in his career and life that shape the things that happen later on in his life. You almost can't have one without the other. It's it's a fascinating story. And more than that, it's almost a story of how a man shapes his community and how a community shapes a man and the very special relationship between the two, and that's something that we really are going to explore in today's episode. So to get into that, I have two tremendous guests uh, that are going to speak about two very different uh, portions of the Angelo Mosca story. AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com is on the program. Uh, we're going to be going in-depth on Angelo's time with Maple Leaf Wrestling, uh, his time in the Toronto and surrounding territories. Our conversation is mostly confined today to Ontario because, and as you're going to hear later in this program, Angelo's relationship with Ontario, with Hamilton specifically, and with the surrounding areas is is something special. And truthfully, it's not something that I've really come across with any episode in this program to date. So, my conversation with AC is focusing mainly on the Ontario aspect of Angelo Mosca's uh, wrestling career, although we naturally do expand onto some of the other territories that he had competed in as well. I'm also thrilled to be joined on the program today by Steve Milton 
Uh, he is a sports writer from the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, he was also the author of the Tell Me To My Face biography of Angelo Mosca. Although he'll tell you that the book was really all Angelo. Um, it's really an eye-opening conversation. We talk about a lot of the state of the CFL currently. A lot of CFL fans will know that uh, we narrowly avoided a big-time labor strike that could have delayed or potentially canceled the CFL season, which, in my opinion, uh, would have been an absolute travesty. And, you know, as much as the CFL is kind of, you know, the cockroach of professional sports leagues, not in a derogatory term, but in the fact that this league seems to survive every single pitfall and and downtrodding and you know whatever uh negative forces trying to you know pull this thing into obscurity uh somehow like a phoenix it seems to continually rise from the ashes and uh, i'm looking forward to a season of uh, some great cfl football so we talk about uh what happened with the strike uh we talk about obviously uh angelo's uh, CFL career, what he means to Hamilton, but also what Hamilton means to him. And we talk about a lot of interesting personal stories relating Angelo Mosca, many of which uh, you may not have heard before if you uh, don't have the book. By the way, there will be a link uh, to that book in today's show notes so you definitely want to check that out uh to say that it was a passion project i'm sure you'll be able to hear in uh, in steve's voice that uh that is probably an understatement so definitely want to get that uh book uh give it a check out it's in the show notes or the link to that book I should say is in the show notes of today's program now before we get into the meat of the matter how about we kick this thing off with a little bit of classic Angelo Mosca audio so I'm going to play some classic Angelo Mosca audio and on the other side let's start to get to the meat of the matter of King Kong Angelo Mosca. Please enjoy. Chance to walk and talk. They talk about the Empire State Bill, but when they talk about the Empire State Bill, they talk about King Kong Mosca. Six foot five, 320 pounds, walks and talks and does exactly what he wants to do. Backlund, you can have your humble pie, because I'm going to shove it right down your throat. You got something I want. The people know I'm a champion. The only thing that's missing is the belt around my waist. And then the people will say, King Kong Mosca does not demand respect. He commends me. Because he's very deserving of having that belt around his waist. So beware. It's like the eyes of March. I'll be on your trail in every corner. And King Kong Mosca will walk in talk one more time. Mosca faces Backlund in Madison Square Garden. The second oldest boy in a family of four boys and seven girls, Angelo Mosca was born on February 13, 1937, 
in Walton, Massachusetts, to Agnes and Angela Mosca. Though his family and personal life growing up was very difficult, something that we're going to get into a little bit later on in the program with one of my guests, Mosca ended up becoming a prodigy football star. And standing at six foot five and 265 pounds, he was heavily sought after by colleges. He ended up attending the University of Notre Dame on a scholarship, though he was kicked out for bookmaking, which is the term for making bets on sports games, uh, something that he would have learned from his father. Again, more on that a little bit later in the program. Next up, he went to Wyoming, but he was booted out of that college for theft. Now, it was said that he was stealing typewriters at the time, which, again, is something that we're going to discuss later on in the program. Though his reputation of any of that didn't scare off any of the Pro Scouts, as he was selected by the Philadelphia Eagles and the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and ended up going to Hamilton in 1958 once he graduated from Notre Dame with a degree in business administration. Now, a lot of people would be wondering why he would choose the CFL over the NFL. Now, you have to keep in mind that at the time, players were actually making more in the CFL than they ever could in the NFL. This was before the big national expansion of the NFL. And to be quite frank, a lot of the best players and a lot of the best money was being made and played in the CFL. Angela Mosca would be quoted as saying, quote, When I came here, the money was better. It was a different time. Also, the bonus money was a lot better. The only thing I knew about Canada was that the Maple Leafs and the Canadians came to the Boston Garden to play hockey. That's all I knew about Canada. Mosca would go on to become a massive star in the CFL, something that we're going to get into later on in the program as well today. And... It's most notable that during the 60s, it would be uh, it would be said that Moscow was the second most recognizable man in Canada, one right behind Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Now, another thing that we're obviously going to be touching on in this program is his wrestling career. Now, it is interesting to note that Moscow's professional wrestling career actually got started in 1959. Uh, it was Montreal wrestling promoter Eddie Quinn who had originally suggested that Mosca consider the squared circle. Uh, there's a quote that Mosca said from SlamWrestling.net, a good friend of the show, uh, Greg Oliver is the author of this one. Quote, He was from Boston, but he was a taxicab driver, Mosca recalled of Quinn. I was a high school All-American. I was in St. Louis's Sporting News and got a scholarship to Notre Dame. He knew my whole background. So I came up to Canada in 1958, and he calls me up in 1959. He says, Why don't you try professional wrestling? You're making a name for yourself in football. Now, two of the early names who helped him learn the trade were Duncan McTavish and Gino Brito. Gino Brito would talk about the conditioning that Moscow would bring from the gridiron to the ring. Quote, When he came out of football, he came to Montreal. We went out to Granby. We were supposed to do a five or six minute match. We went about 30 minutes. He was hard to work with. He was a big bastard, said Brito. You came out of the ring. You were drained out completely. He could tell the guy that had been in sports before. 
he knew timing, and playing to the crowd too. Now, the Montreal and Toronto areas were not the only areas in Canada that Angelo Mosco was a featured performer. He was also heavily featured here in Winnipeg, and as well as in Stampede Wrestling. His time in Stampede Wrestling is interesting, because he has some, shall we say, unique perspectives about uh, how he was presented there and what ended up happening there. Uh, to speak a little bit more about that, I'm going to read an excerpt from Pain and Passion, the tremendous book by a friend of the show, Heath McCoy. Now, some of these comments may seem out of place. However, as we get into the Angelo Mosca story, I think you'll understand his headspace and where he was coming at in terms of some of these um, observations that he had in Stampede Wrestling. So I'm going to quote directly from the book. Another football player still recruited was Angelo Mosca of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Mosca, a Canadian Football Hall of Famer, was thought to be one of the fiercest players in the CFL. Now, Mosca would be quoted in the book as saying, Some guys like to keep their thumb on you, he says, referring to Dave Rule. Mosca feels Rule, who was the head booker at the time, never liked him and tried to keep him out of the main event matches. Despite his problems with Rule, Mosca says that he enjoyed his time in Calgary. He made $500 a week, and the notoriety that Stu's stars had in the territory came with fringe, fringe benefits. Quote, I went through divorce at that time, and there were a lot of broads, he chuckles. Mosca used to get a kick out of the Hart family, who he found strange. Quote, they were the original Osbournes, he says, comparing the Hearts to the accrued MTB family of rocker Ozzy Osbourne. Helen would say, Hello, Angelo, how are you today? Then in the next breath it would be, Where is Stu, that son of a bitch? <laughs> he remembers seeing the Hart Boys hanging around the dressing room after the matches. If Stu gave us a lousy pay, I'd kick him in the ass. They'd go, What's that for? I'd say, Ah, I'm getting even with your dad. The former football star recalls having to struggle to, with Stu to get paid. Moscow worked the main event one night with the pavilion, and he didn't feel like he got his rightful share of the gate. The following week, he was again at the top of the card, and he held up the show, refusing to go into the ring until Stu pointed up. Quote, I want my money for tonight and for last week's money, growled the, the King Kong. Desperate, Stu tried to write Mosca a check. Quote, I don't want no check. I want cash. Stu went to the box office to get the wrestler's money. I took all that cash and put it in my trunks. Then I went to the ring. And that's something that will make a little bit more sense as you hear one of the other guests of the program today. And one of my later on conversations. Money and power and respect is something that uh, really did seem to matter to Angelo Mosca. Uh, obviously, from his humble beginnings, we'll say. And again, more on that a lot later. But it's one of those, or it's some of the things, I think, that really shaped him into becoming the player and the person that he ended up being uh, later on in his life and career. And fortunately, uh, towards the end, he had softened up, which is why some of the uh, tremendous insights 
uh, that Steve Milton are, is going to be bringing to the program are really, really eye-opening and really just something that you would not expect to hear about somebody like uh, King Kong Mosca, who was, you know, for all intents and purposes, one of the meanest people in professional wrestling and on the gridiron. Now, I'm sure you figured out that we're going to be going a little bit wrestling heavy on the front end of the program today. I think that the football side and the personal side is the more fascinating aspect of it. We're going to be getting to that a little bit later on in the program. However, the wrestling side is something that is extremely interesting, and that's why I'm very pleased to be joined on the program by AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com. Uh, we're going to be discussing his time, his being Angelo Mosca's time in the Toronto area. We're going to be talking some of his most memorable feuds, his time with the Canadian heavyweight title, and much more. But before we get into that, how about we play some more classic Angelo Mosca audio. And then on the other side, my conversation with AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com. Please enjoy. Our guest now, King Kong Muska. And King Kong Muska could very well put an end to a legend in Baltimore. Mr. Muska, there's no doubt that indeed thus far in the World Wrestling Federation, you have pretty much done exactly as you say. You walk, you talk, you do exactly as you please. But I just wonder what will happen when you meet up with Bruno. You know, I'm also a legend of my times, Bruno San Martino. I'm a legend in a different sport in a different country, but that's history. That's what you will be <laughs> when I pin you in Baltimore, Maryland. is nothing but history. Bruno, when I get done with you, you're going to be wandering along the Potomac trying to find out exactly what happened to you in the ring that night because King Kong Mosca can walk and talk wherever he wants. So, Bruno, <laughs> it's very advantageous to me because I've been wrestling day after day. You've been wrestling on laurels. We had football players wrestling on laurels. They're not here today. And when I'm done with you, you won't be there tomorrow either. So, Bruno, if you're thinking of wrestling on your laurels, Get off that fat can of yours and get conditioning because you're going to face a man, 319 pounds, who walks and talks. And he is going to become a legend of two countries, not only Canada, but USA. All right, really pleased to be joined on the line by second time guest appearance, uh, AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com. AC, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Andy. How are you? I'm doing Pretty good. You know, we were talking off air a little bit about my adventures wheeling and dealing in the garage sale world today. So uh, that was a lot of fun. But I think we're gonna have a lot of fun today talking about some uh, Angela Mosca. I'm sure we will. So if anybody is unfamiliar with yourself, and by the way, if you are, you can go back in the archives and listen to AC's guest appearance on the Gene Kaniski episode from season one of Grappling with Canada. But if people seem to have missed that one, uh, can you give everybody a little bit of background about yourself 
and as well what you're doing with MapleLeafWrestling.com. Sure. Well, we run uh, MapleLeafWrestling.com. We're actually into our 19th year. You know, I'm just a fan, and uh, we have some other people that contribute to the site. And we look at the whole history of, of mostly Toronto and, and around Ontario, of course, including Mosca and, and some of the regulars that were here uh, right from the early days up till the, the end in the, in the 1980s. And naturally, uh, you would have a lot of personal experience witnessing, you know, a lot of these cards uh, firsthand. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, like in the, in the last years of the promotion, Moscow was, was the big star here. You know, he held the Canadian title. And he would be feuding with the, the big heels of the day, you know. So he, he, was our, he was our main star. In those last few years, it kind of passed through Bravo, uh, Dewey Robertson, by about 1980, Dewey left, and Angelo Mosca, who had been, you know, he'd been a bad guy all those years since he had, he had come here in the late 60s. So they turned him into the local star, and, and he carried the title and defended it somewhat regularly for the first couple of years, and then the last couple of years it kind of died off. We can get into that a little later, but... It was a big part of the scene here for for the last four years of the NWA days, or the you know the Toronto promotion as it was before they switched to WWF. So you, there's an interesting point that you just brought up, and I want to kind of key in on it a little bit, and that was uh, how he was presented to the fans. You were saying that originally he was the heel in in the territory, and then turned um, turned face. When he was a heel, was that directly a result of? you know, him being a member of the Hamilton Tiger Cats and, and wrestling in Toronto, or, or what was the dichotomy there separating or including football with uh, the professional wrestling aspect? Yeah, that's exactly right. He was playing football in Hamilton, you know, and he was, he was known as a tough guy already on the field, kind of, kind of a heel persona, you know, and he was wrestling at the same time, but, at that time, he was he was more of a heel as a football player, as far as everybody knew him. Yes. So of course, when he when he turned to wrestling, and especially there's a bit of a rivalry, you know, Toronto Hamilton in the football world. So uh, naturally, that that translated into the ring. So you know, for those first few years, uh, he was a heel. Of course, he was a heel pretty much everywhere he wrestled, most of the time with the exception of Toronto and a little bit in Winnipeg, but, but most of that time he was always a bad guy, you know, fit him perfectly on and off uh, the field and in and out of the ring as well. Right. Now did his, did his turn, you know, baby face, did that occur after his playing career then? Yeah, that was a lot later. Like when he, when he first came into Toronto, he was still playing and then he gave up the game, went into pro wrestling full time. By the time of, by the, like the mid Atlantic era, you know, from the, from 1978 on when they created the Canadian title, he had just flipped. Like he was still a bad guy at that time. Uh, once the mid Atlantic started, started coming in, you know, Flair, Steamboat and those guys, they switched them. So he was now a good guy, and, and it set the kind of the stage uh, a couple of years down the road to, to fit him right in there as the number one guy. Now it's interesting, almost, you know, you figure this guy, a big football star, a lot of notoriety in Canada, 
uh, goes down to the States. You just had mentioned his time in Mid-Atlantic. He was a big deal in the States as well. Do you think that his background in the CFL helped his career in the in the States? Because I understand that he had his choice between uh, the NFL and CFL when he was getting into wrestling or re- sorry into uh, football as well yeah yeah i think he had a reputation even at that time i, I mean at, at that time in the 70s especially the wrestlers who had legit backgrounds you know we, i think we, we touched on that in the kaninsky episode the fans it was a different way of looking at them because you knew they were a legit athlete you knew they were tough already so it definitely helped with their with their ring persona. The thing with Mark is, I mean, you just have to look at him. You know, he 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 he, he sweated violence, kind of even as a football player. <laughs> he just looked mean and, and nasty, and definitely just took that whole character and and which was basically himself, you know, mostly, and turned it into a wrestler. Yeah, and, and it worked. It worked really well. And he was a much better as a heel, for sure, than he was as a good guy, I think. You know. Now, in terms of some of the most notable feuds that he would have had, can you speak a little bit about some of the biggest ones uh, that he would have had in the Maple Leaf Wrestling area? Yeah, he started out, that was when the Hossein the Arab, the Iron Sheep, was the champion. Yes. So that, that's how they started pushing him. He won the title off of him. And then most of the most of the feuds were with the big guys like Stud and Slaughter, you know, because they would just go out and brawl it out. Like there wasn't a lot of wrestling moves in those bouts, obviously. You know, Mosca wasn't a big wrestling kind of guy. It was mostly just stomping and but the, you know, that was that was the, the matchups were good, at least with the bigger guys, you know. There, there were some clunkers in there too, but uh, you know, they matched him against Mr. Fuji, which probably wasn't a great, you know, pairing. So there were some mistakes. At one point, uh, the John Studd, they had an angle with Stud bringing in a mystery opponent for him. Like, a, in, during their feud, he was going to bring in a mystery opponent to face Mosca. So there was a big, we all thought, oh, could it be Andre the Giant? Or, you know, you're thinking of all these big names. Yes. And it turned out to be Tarzan Tyler. So Tarzan Tyler was a, you know, he's a big star in his day, but this was way later. Yes. And he was a bit long in the tooth. And it, it was one of the big clunkers of the era. <laughs> you know? Because we were expecting this great thing. And basically, Mosca came out and mostly destroyed him. I think some of that ballot uh, is on YouTube. And uh, it just kind of killed it. And and from that on, I didn't really buy into the whole Mosca thing, you know. Yeah, it almost taints the uh, the stigma around him a little bit, right? You or the aura, I should say, around him, because you know you you look at this guy and, and there's such a build, and you think you're going to get you know a, a huge match or a big opponent, and and you're kind of left you know holding your hat in your hands almost. Yeah, I think it was tough to find good opponents for him because, you know, there wasn't a lot of, of mat wrestling, so you couldn't, you couldn't put certain people in there. I mean, at the same time, he, at, at that time, he was also appearing in WWF in New York as a heel and challenging Backland, and they were having big, big violent brawls, you know, 
but not a ton of wrestling in them either. But uh, that was another aspect of, of his title reign here. While he was a good guy in Toronto, he was a bad guy in the WWF. Which, that's interesting, too, because Toronto would have had the WWF television at the same time, right? Sure. I used to watch WWF at midnight on Saturday night. We used to get it on WUTV out of Buffalo. And it was the show that Vince hosted with Pat Patterson. Yes. And then that's, that's right around the time that they had that incident where Mosca attacked Patterson with the water pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen that? Yeah, I've, I've look, seen look, look it up. It, it's one of the best. It looks like he really kills him with it. You know, like he hits him hard. And that was shown on TV here, so we're all, you know, scratching our heads. I mean, by that time, we kind of knew what was going on, you know. But at the same time, it was strange because he's such a, a good guy here, and meanwhile, he's pulling this stuff, you know, on our TV uh, somewhere else. It's also interesting, you know, in terms of his tenure in a relationship with Maple Leaf Wrestling, because Maple Leaf Wrestling was you know, very much waning in the 80s as a lot of the, you know, other territories where you, you go on down the list, whether it's, you know, Stampede, AWA, whatever. How was it uh, perceived his his star quality in Maple Leaf Wrestling at the time, even though the territory was kind of on its way out? Well, that's a good question, you know. Keep in mind that, that towards the end, he actually took the title and he split to Florida. For a few months. Oh, that's right and, too. Yeah, he stayed there and he wrestled as a bad guy, like as a heel, and he would team up with like Stud and and Leroy Brown and, and people that he was feuding with here. <laughs> so it made it even stranger. At that time, though, we didn't get Florida TV, but we would read it in the magazine. But maybe a few months later, you know, it wasn't in real time, right? Now the and part of the Part of the reason I, I read it, like, years later, I read that he had been upset at the payoffs, and that's why he left and went to Florida to wrestle. Okay, that leads me to and, my next question. I'll, yeah. I'll let you continue, though. Yeah, because in a sense, like, I don't know the inside. I wasn't there. You'd have to, you'd have to speak to someone that was in, on the inside in the office. But a lot of it had to do with the, the payouts were based on percentages. So the guy at the top, obviously, is going to make good money when it's busy, but he's not going to make great money when it's not. So I believe that was the impetus for him to split, saying that he took the title belt and he defended it down there as well, the Canadian title defended in Florida. Now, the the houses in Maple Leaf Wrestling is something that, you know, people have gone back and forth about uh obviously that's a big part of best nevada's book that'll be coming out shortly but in terms of the entirety when and we can go you know decade by decade if if it's easy for you but in terms of the houses that were being drawn not maybe necessarily because of angela mosca but at the time that he was there can you speak a little bit about what the houses were like in let's go with the late 60s into the 70s and then obviously you you know, the tail end into the, into the eighties. Well, there was like, like other territories, there's a lot of valleys and, and, and high points and low points. Like the fifties was, was a boom here. 
Yes. So coming out of the 50s, there was a bit of a letdown in the 60s. Business picked up, you know, mid-60s. They were still doing well. A a lot of the misunderstanding is, like, they may see attendance results from 1965 at Maple Leaf Gardens, you know, 5,000. Keep in mind, though, it was weekly cards. Yes. Right? And they weren't only appearing in Maple Leaf Gardens. They were doing a little circuit at the time with, with three or four other cities as regular stuff. So as a whole, they were doing still pretty well, but not as good as, as in the good times. Uh, of course, the chic era, you know, they did really well there for four or five years. And then they, when the chic left, Frank uh, teamed up with Vern Gagne and the AWA. The cars were better, but the attendance didn't help. Like, it didn't come back. So by the time 1978 rolled around, they brought they made the connection with uh, Jim Crockett Jr., Rick Flair, Ricky Steamboat, you know Jay Youngblood. Those guys all started coming in, and it, it started going back up again. Where you'd see 11,000, 15,000, those types of houses. And did those types of houses continue into the 80s, or was there a lull before the shutdown? No, it, it, it continued. There were some good cards in there. You know, they hit 15,000, 16,000. I'd say most of the cards are around 10 or 11. But that's still a pretty good pretty good house. By that time, though, they're down to, you know, one every couple of weeks. Yes. Sometimes one every three weeks. So it was a little different. Saying that, though, they did go back to the circuit that they had discontinued mostly in the 70s. So by the time Moscow was Canadian champ, they had four or five cities to hit after the Maple Leaf Garden show. Yes. So they would hit two or three each time. So they had kind of a mini circuit, but it was only every every couple of weeks. Now, so the houses were still good. It didn't start to die off until, you know, mid-83 in that area. So for the last year or so of the promotion, it started to downfall, you know. And in, in terms of you know, the houses, how the cards were during uh, Mosca's, you know, title reign with the, with the Canadian title. Who were some of the big uh, feuds that he had there? And what kind of houses were they drawing? Was it in that, you know, 10 to 15 range uh, consistently? Yeah, some of them. I wouldn't say Mosca was a huge draw, like on his own. Yes. The, the big draw here through those years is definitely the NWA title. And mostly Ric Flair, you know, Flair and Steamboat, those guys really brought the houses. So even even while Monster was was champ, I mean, they did well, and he, he was part of a couple of big cards. Like in 1982, they had the double world title card uh, with Mosca face Bockwinkle for the AWA title, and Ric Flair and Harley Race fought for the NWA title. And there was the 11,000, which is still pretty good. But they had to appear in Buffalo, uh, not Bockwinkle, but Flair and the rest of the crew in the afternoon. So they had 10,000 in Buffalo. They did 11,000 something here. Wow. And then, yeah, and then the following day, they took it to Ottawa and they did 10,000 there. Jesus. So you got to kind of look at the whole picture, not just. Uh, the gardens in those years because there was quite a few other houses to add in, you know. Now, in, in terms of where Moscow was working in that in the t- time that he had the title, 
was it mostly in Toronto or was, or was he going to Buffalo and was he going to Ottawa and the other cities? Was was there cities that were left out and was there cities that he frequented more? No, he, he would appear on most of those. What, what, they, what they ran is like on the Sunday night Maple Leaf Gardens card would have all the mid-Atlantic stars there, you know. And then on, on Monday, they would they would go into uh, Hamilton, or, or on Tuesday, they hit Oshawa. So they'd have a little mini-circuit after the garden show. The thing was that some of the mid-Atlantic stars, like especially Flair or some of the bigger ones, they wouldn't always stay on for those circuit cards. Yes. But Moscow would. Like Moscow would be up here on all of them. So he would defend the title versus the Iron Sheik here, then in Kingston, and you know, so he would move around. He would do three or four of them, and then it would be a break until the next Garden Show a couple of weeks later. Which is interesting too, because a lot of times you'll you'll either hear of guys who, you know, maybe they'll make a few shots, and then you'll hear about guys that'll they make sure they make every shot. I wonder if if going to all of these cities was important uh, to him rather than, you know, just kind of having to do it as, as some people would look at it. Yeah, I think it was probably like beneficial because the local guys, like they, they were all local, you know, Angelo probably was in Hamilton at the time, you know, those guys were living here. So to go do a few shots and get paid after the big show uh, probably helps. He was very busy in Moscow. He was flying back and forth to New York a lot during those first couple of years with the title, uh, 81, 80, 80, 81, 82. So he would, he would appear here and then be gone for four or five days and do the WWF circuit. You know, he'd appear at the Hamburg tapings. He'd appear at MSG. Then he'd be in Philadelphia. You know, he'd do all that circuit as well. And by the time he had done a bit of a circuit there, he would come back here. So he, he was doing very well, I'm sure, as far as paydays all around, you know. And then in terms of paydays while he was a champion, would you know what he was looking at? I know it's a percentage of the gate, and obviously we, we can extrapolate what the gates were, but would you have a rough idea of, of what he was averaging per show? Well, I don't know in that era. I do have some info from previous eras. I mean, they could make a lot of money if there was 15,000 people there. The headliners could walk away with a few thousand, five thousand, that type of money. Just, just like anywhere else. Like if you've ever seen the, the booking sheets from Houston or that that circulate around, you can see the top guys sometimes, you know, $7,000 for a night. Yes. Or, 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 you know, they, so they could make it, and they, they could make it here too if it was busy. And I, I'm sure when times were good, Moscow did very well, and that's why he kind of homesteaded, you know. It's always fascinating to look at the numbers side of it because, you know, people will throw around, you know, that wrestler say that with the guaranteed contracts and what they're making. And that's a whole other conversation I feel for, for a different time. But you look at some of the numbers that guys were making back in the day, like you were saying, you know, three, five, seven thousand. You put that in today's money, right? It, it's you're, you're looking at you know ten to fifteen thousand for one match. It, it's pretty wild sure. to think. Sure, I mean it's like uh, like a rock band, you know, if you're playing ten thousand seat arenas, 
you're going to be making some big money. And, uh, you know, Fred Tony was known as being a pretty good payoff guy because of that percentage-type pay. So the, the wrestlers knew if it was busy, they're going to, they're going to do well here. Okay, so now that you brought that up, that's something I want to dig into a little bit. And I, it'll divert a little bit from our Mosca discussion, but it's something that I've continually come across in my research for, for this program is is how Tunney ran the payoffs. And it was noted that he was one of one of the more generous uh, payoff people, one of the more fair ones, you know, between uh, him, uh, Muchnik was noted as one, um, and a few other ones. Can you speak a little bit about how Tunney ran the territory in terms of in terms of payoffs and how he dealt with with the crew that he had? Well, I mean, I can only tell you from what what I've read or that I don't know inside. Part of you know the Toronto territory is very closed. You know the Tunney the Tunney family basically kept kept all the secrets. So unless you know, Eddie is, is the last one that would kind of be able to give you that. To, to be able to look at the ledgers would be fascinating, to say the least. Oh I can God. tell you that in the in, that, that Frank definitely modeled his his office after Muchnick, and and dealt with almost ran Toronto in a similar way to St. Louis. At least that's the way I see it from the outside. So he definitely paid well at the top. I'm, I don't know about at the bottom. There was a lot of a lot of our local wrestlers left and went other places yes. to kind of hit it big because it was tough to crack that top spot here or to get into the main, the semi, especially in the fifties and sixties. So I think I think by the seventies and eighties, the, the office had changed. And it, it probably it probably wasn't as friendly as it used to be in the older days. Uh, some of that may have had to do with Jack Tunney being part of it too, and having more of a role. You know, Frank. By the, by the time that we were, I was a fan, Frank was almost on the way out. Yes. You know, he was he was a granddad, and he was Jack was doing a lot of the day to day running of the territory, as far as I know. So it definitely changed by Moscow's time. But saying that, they definitely got paid well right to the end as long as there was people in the seat, you know? So naturally, after Maple Leaf Wrestling folds in, in mid-'80s, um, Moscow was still performing, I believe, still doing shots with the WWF. Was he still coming through the territory with the WWF, or he had, or had he kind of... Uh, started to curtail his appearances after that point in time. No, he stayed there. I remember he took over the announcing for a while, and it was terrible. <laughs> he didn't last long. I believe. I believe he got replaced by Jesse Ventura. Well, there's a there's a so, big power up. Yeah, it was, it was right around that time in, in mid '84, just after they switched here. They, they kept Moscow on as a commentator. And it, it didn't last long, but I do recall that Moscow was still wrestling for uh, for for WWF and that. And then he, he would also appear on McKinney's cards in and around Ontario. The Wild Man on the it's like a, it was an indie set. I'm sure you're familiar with yes. it. So Moscow and his son still appeared up until about 1986 on on the Little Circuit. You know. 
I wonder how he was able to swing that, you know, appear on appear on the independent circuit while still. Well, yeah, I'm not sure of the timeline there, but like nobody would have noticed because they were they were doing shows like the little places here, you know, with very little promotion and no TV. Yeah. So in those days, you could just do it. And, and it didn't last long. You know, he, of course, he went on to, to go back to the NWA, and he created the Pro Wrestling USA. So that was in around that time, too, around 1985. So let's talk about how much or how familiar are you with Pro Wrestling USA? Uh, pretty familiar. I watched it. I liked it. Okay, so it was old tapes, though, and stuff. There were some issues, but at the time, I loved it because I hated WWF. <laughs> so for me, it was it was incredible to get to see other wrestling, and they would have tapes from, from all over different territories. So it was really cool for us, you know, as, as fans. Yeah, it's almost like you're you're getting a different taste of what's out there rather than, you know, what's just beamed into your, your market from the WWF at that time. Yeah, like to me, the WWF was very like kid oriented. It was just a whole different thing. I, I just didn't like it at all. When when pro wrestling uh, Canada came on, it was it was definitely cool. Plus, we thought maybe oh, the NWA is going to come back in, and it did, but not exactly you know what we wanted. Mosca ended up bringing it back uh, and promoting Hamilton and Kitchener, you know, with Mosca Manias. Uh, we could talk about after, but uh, pro wrestling Canada also it had Milta Ruskin uh, commentating. He used to be he used to do Superstars of Wrestling with George Cannon. Yes, who was like one of the best commentators ever. So he really made that show, and Angelo would just sit and comment, and it was actually pretty good. So obviously, we're going to get into Moscow Media in a second, but let's talk about him running the cards with the NWA. How did that come to be? Uh, I don't know. He just made a deal to bring the NWA in. He had some. He had a lot of, of, of clout and Hamilton, keep in mind. So he was able to make things happen that maybe other people wouldn't. So, you know, that's probably how it ended up coming to be. He teamed up with an old teammate, and then they got uh, Amstel Brewery to sponsor it. So it, it really helped, and, and the first one did very well uh, in Hamilton, and he, he was set up to run TV. Uh, they were planning shows all over the place. They were even rumored to be planning shows in Toronto at, at maybe Varsity Stadium or one of the outside places, uh, but it never came to be. One of the big problems with that was he couldn't get TV in Toronto. Yes. He wanted to get TV on CFDO, which is the big, you know, the main channel in Toronto. He couldn't. So it, it, it kind of killed him. They did show it on the affiliates in the smaller towns, like uh, in Kitchener, you could see it. But in Toronto, you had to get it on the, uh, like for a time, you could get it, but he couldn't get his TV show on. And, and it killed it, you know, against the WWF. So one thing that was an excellent uh, debut and then maybe not so much a follow-up effort was Moscow Mania. So I feel like we should dedicate some time and really, really get into how that uh, happened. 
Well, you know, the first one they did 12,000 fans, which was pretty good at the time. Uh, a lot of it was, you know, in Toronto, the, the Tunnies had exclusive rights to Maple Leaf Gardens as far as wrestling went. And that went back to, it might have even gone back to the, the first day, the, the 1931, when Jack Corcoran got the first uh, license to promote there. So nobody could promote at the gardens except WWF at that time because Jack Tunney was in charge. So anywhere else you're going to put on a show, even Hamilton, Kitchener, London, all the small towns around Toronto, you're never going to really get a foothold without having Toronto. And then how did it come to be that, uh, like, how did he shape the card? How did he pick where the event was going to emanate? Uh, and how, how did promotion work? And what was the buzz around Moscow Mania at the time? Oh, it was huge at the time. And the first one, it was really big. They had a lot of publicity, stories in the paper, uh, on TV. I remember it was a, a huge thing. And, and really, Hamilton, like, the whole town kind of rallied around it. Yes. So it made it a really big event even beyond wrestling. Uh, so it, it was big. Keep in mind, at that time, WWF was doing very well in Toronto, and they were promoting Hamilton as well. Yeah. So this was, this was a, you know, it was a, a head-on kind of clash. He, he did very well on the first one. Uh, and then on the second one, they had a ton of no-shows. There was a uh, you know, there was a lot of bad blood on the second one uh, that he did, and that kind of killed it, uh, the final nail in the coffin. Let's expand a little bit further on the second one. When you're talking about no-shows, was there talent confirmed that had dropped out previous to the show, or did it happen day of, or, or what ended up happening there? Yeah, there was a couple issues. One of them is that he ran it on the same night as a show at MLG, uh, a WWF card that was uh, Roddy Piper at, uh, versus Adrian Adonis in a retirement bout. Oh, goodness. And it had a, it had a Savage Steamboat matchup. So right away, it was killed. Like, you know, it's going to be tough to go up against that. Uh, they had Claire versus Nikita, and they drew 3,000 to the Moscow show. The WWF drew 17,000 yeah. to the Gardens. So, you know, there was a lot of NWA fans still here, but because it was just the old school, it couldn't compete. The WWF was like a steamroller, and it was picking up families and, you know, grandparents and little kids. And it was a different type of uh, wrestling and entertainment. And it was just the wrong time. The writing was on the wall. I think that's what mostly killed it. That you couldn't compete at all against the WWF. Yeah, I mean, going head to head, I, I, that decision alone was was brutal. Then you factor in, in the no shows, and then this is right in the time of, you know, the rock and wrestling connection. Right, this is you know Hulkamania's at his peak. Roddy Piper's the the, the most hated villain in wrestling, and it's et cetera, et cetera. Right, the, there's there's so many 
like the WWF was firing all cylinders. So, you know, even if it wasn't the same night, you're still up against it at that point in time. Right. And there was also a show with the, he was supposed to have the road warriors and, uh, one of them didn't show. I think Hawk never showed, uh, and, and the, the, the fans were, were besides themselves. You know, the road warriors were the, the anti WWF kind yes. of. Yes. So that was a huge draw for them. And that, that it just left a lot of bad blood. I've also heard over the years, you know, about the payouts from that and a lot of bad blood with the wrestlers. So maybe he had a bit of an issue too to, to get them to come up again in the Sorry, future. I just want to clarify your time about payoffs from the first Moscow Media. No, from the from the second oh, show the and second. the third. He also did some TV taping. Yes. Uh, and and in around Toronto, and they appeared in Peterborough. They had some other shows planned. It was supposed to be a, a real big thing at the time. You know, it, it looked good on paper, but then it never panned out. So that may have had something to do with it. You know, the wrestlers just didn't want to come up for one show here, you know, or two shows here, uh, all the way from the south or whatever. Well, especially if they're busy on, you know, the NWA loop at that time. Because that's right. been a big, big time consumer. and And still, you know... You're looking at 87, 88, 89, and NWA was still drawing quite well. So, you know, you're asking guys to almost give up guaranteed money to come up here for a maybe. Yeah, up, up here, I mean, they tried. The NWA came in. They came back later, too, around 1989, 90. The AWA also came in in their dying days to try to run a show down uh, on the exhibition grounds, I believe. That did like a couple of hundred people. Oh, God. They just couldn't. They couldn't draw because the WWF became the only wrestling in town in that sense. Now, in terms of of Angela Mosca's wrestling career and, and what people thought of it, let's let's kind of expand upon that a little bit. What did the fans think of his career at the time? And how did they view him and his wrestling career after the fact? And further to that, did Mosca Mania kind of taint his his wrestling legacy in the Ontario area? Uh, I'll touch on that first. I don't think so. Uh, like his, his post wrestling career, I don't I don't really consider it all the same. I, I think he's remembered fondly, but not as one of our greats in the big picture. And, and I say that, I mean, the fans loved him at the time, but I don't know that he was, he was one of our all-time greats because of, because of the style that he wrestled. Uh, there was quite a few factors because he was just that same tough guy from football. Yes. You know, so I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, his legacy as a wrestler and as a football player, you know, is unequal. So you can't really... You can't really paint anything about his career. I'd say in Toronto, you know, we saw the, we saw his last years, so you can't really grade him on that. I think if we would have, if I would have seen him in 1971 or 72, you'd see a totally different guy. You know. Yeah, and it's it's almost a shame at that point where, you know, you you almost catch him at the wrong time, right? When when he's 
when he's most on top is towards the end of both, you know, his career in the ring and then, you know, the dying days of uh, Maple Leaf Wrestling. So it's, you're almost getting the double whammy at that point in time. Yeah, most, most of his persona was his personality. So he was, he was bigger than life without even getting into the ring, you know, standing on the ramp. You know, he, he was just a bigger than life type of guy. And he exuded that even even in those years, he still exuded that he was a, a tough guy, and that he you know he uh, he wasn't going to back down from from the next guy that came in, and that's why the fans liked him. I think he he, he came in uh, the way the way they did it was good, but they held on to him too long, yeah. and they should have transitioned it a little, you know. Now, in terms of your experience watching Moscow, was there one feud or one match that really stuck out, stood out to you? Well, the feud with Stud, you know, for sure stood out because they traded the title back a few times. They had some cage bouts. There was always a lot of blood. I think I think they like kind of beating on each other. <laughs> you know, they they had a, a they both kind of had the same style, so it worked. You know they weren't gonna they weren't gonna see too many holes with those two, but th- those two looked good matched up because they were about the same size, and they could they could brawl and have a good bout, keep everybody going as long as you had some other wrestling on the card, you know, some some wrestling wrestling. Yeah, not just you can't have a card full of brawls. It doesn't doesn't necessarily yeah. work. Yeah, in Toronto usually we had the opener with a good scientific type match, you know, to set the stage. And so he always had a good bit of wrestling in there. So you definitely need some blood and some brawling. No, why not? Yeah, it's it definitely uh, a mix. I, I mean, you can almost say that for most places in Canada, that uh, the mix is really what helps a card along. And, and everybody does love a good uh, brawl. But, uh, yeah, you need to have a little bit of extra extra sauce on the card, that's for sure. Yeah, I think I think really he, he he stayed around as long as he did because of his son, you know, to get his son into it and to to wrestle with him. So that that definitely had something to do with it. And his son his son continued too on the indie circuit here after he kind of dropped off. I remember they tried him at, in the WWF as well yes. uh, when they first started coming in. They would use a lot of the local guys as the openers. You know, Nick Picardo and these guys. So Mosca Jr. got some shots, and then he just dropped off, I guess, around the same time that Mosca stopped announcing, and they both showed up on the indie circuit for a bit. Now, was there was there goodwill left over from the fans for Mosca Jr., or how, how did that work for him when he was there? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. You know, that, the problem... That, if you're online, you know, he gets a lot of hate, Mosca Jr., a lot of hate, and it's a shame. You know, he's a really nice guy in real life. He's a good athlete. He was a good athlete. Uh, he just, it, they pushed him the wrong way, and so the fans, you know, there's a bout on, on YouTube with Koloff. You know, everyone always brings that one up. He misses a drop kick or whatever. But by the time he was on the indie circuit here, he'd already been wrestling a few years. He was a lot better than he was in, in the earlier days in Mid-Atlantic. 
you could go on so to – sorry, go ahead. It's okay. I was just going to say, you know, he got better, but nobody saw it. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, a couple hundred people here and there at the show is here, but that's it. Yeah, it's that – the second-generation curse, right? It, it, either the guy, you know, or girl – steps in and really embraces it and is able to, you know, come out of their, their father's or mother's shadow or, you know, they're, they, you know, make a couple of mistakes and then it's, it's, it's game over and they can never recover out of it. And we've seen that yeah. in history. Yeah. Yeah. They push, they push Mark the junior too fast. You know, they, they made a mid-Atlantic champion, you know, after a couple of weeks or whatever it was, it was just too quick. I think, you know, we saw quite a few second-generation guys here. Even in that era, we had Blackjack Mulligan Jr. at that time in the around 82 while Moscow was champ. Uh, he wrestled up here a little bit before he became Barry Windham, or, or before he became Barry Windham everywhere. And he was really good, and you could tell right from the start he was really good. And he was going to get a lot better. With Moscow, he wasn't that good at the beginning, but he could still get better, and he did. Yeah. You know. I guess as we uh, as we start to wrap up, is there anything that we didn't cover in our uh, in our Moscow discussion that that you feel needs to uh, be brought to light a little bit? Uh, not not really. I mean, when I was a when we were going, I wasn't a, a huge Moscow fan because I, I always preferred the, you know, the wrestler type. Yes. But saying that, some of the best best bouts or the best, uh, you know, the, the best nights were those that Moscow and Stud were, were beating each other senseless, those types of nights, because those are the ones you kind of remember, you know. Yeah, you always do. It's almost easier to remember the the big brawling wars than it is, you know, yeah. the, some of the technical matches in, in, in professional wrestling. Yeah, he had some good ones. He definitely left a legacy in Toronto, there's no doubt, and and elsewhere, but definitely here, you know, he'll always be remembered as, as King Kong Mosca, you know, mean and nasty, that guy, the football guy, the wrestler guy. He's just a big name here and probably always will be. And now, before I let you go for for our conversation today, uh, what's happening with Maple Leaf Wrestling, and where and where can people find uh, what you have going on with that project? Uh, we have MapleLeafWrestling.com. It's been there for 19 years. We cover from the early days. Uh, we have Gary Will's Toronto Wrestling History. We feature the photos of Roger Baker, who's a photographer at Maple Leaf Gardens in the 60s and 70s. And we got something there for everyone, and it's free. <laughs> so visit at MapleLeafWrestling.com. Can't beat the price. Definitely free is is uh, one that everybody can afford. There you go. <laughs> and then there's there's a Facebook group as well, is there not? Uh, well, that's my friend Griff, Barry Hatchett, uh, uh, a.k.a. He has the Facebook group. That's Maple Leaf Wrestling Archives. So that, that mostly focuses on the Mid-Atlantic era. And uh, and his collection, which is immense. Ah, Check it out. You like that one too. Yeah. So there you go. Two two sites where you can go and uh, check out some Maple Leaf wrestling history, and uh, the price is right on both those sites. Yes, they're both free. 
<laughs> and listen, AC, this was a tremendous conversation. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. And I have a feeling when I have to have you back on the program very soon. I didn't know that, Andy. Thanks for having me. Well, King Kong Moscow. Wait a minute. You're not scheduled to be here. Get out of my Wait way. Let me tell you one thing. Pat Patterson, you made this referee change the mistake. You want to interview a referee, do it in front of my face. Because I take matters into my own hands. And I'm going to take matters into my own hands in any arena in North America. All right, Mr. Mosca. You're talking about what a big man you are, yes. how brave you are. Yes. Let's take you and the fans back to what we saw. Let's take you back. You take it because this case was probably doctored. All right, Pat Patterson. We're going to go back now, and Pat Patterson is interviewing referee Dick Moscow. He's not the winner. Well, I think Moscow got what he deserved. He deserved. That's about time you did a good job. what he wants to do. I am the king of the WWF. I walk, I talk, and I do exactly what I'm going to do. Listen to these fans. Anywhere. Listen to them. Go ahead, bring them. Call up every one of your people. Bring Patterson out here now. Listen to that. Let them listen. They're all in the sun, but I'll walk alone. I'll stand alone. I'll do exactly what I want in any arena in USA. In continuing our look at the career and life of Angelo Mosca, we're going to move into his CFL career. Now, this is something that I had alluded to earlier, and there's a little bit of information on this as well that isn't as well known by maybe today's uh, CFL fans or uh, maybe newer fans of Angelo Mosca. Uh, a little bit of that I'm going to get into right now. So, as we discussed earlier on in the program... Angelo Mosca did debut for the Hamilton Tiger Cats during the 1958-1959 season. He was traded to the Ottawa Rough Riders on August 15th of 1960 and continued to play for the Ottawa Rough Riders until 1961. Uh, he then joined the Montreal Alouettes in 1962 for five games. From there, he played the remainder of his career from 1962 to 1972 with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And obviously, those are the big years that everybody really talks about. Now, I'm going to get into his, or more of a deep dive into his CFL stats as we kind of discuss the whole statistical side of Angelo Mosca's career later on in this program, because as impressive as his wrestling career was, boy oh boy, his football career is just lights out out of this world. And I'm not saying that he was the greatest CFL player of all time. He's certainly one of the top. I think he ended up uh, number 37 out of the 
top 50 uh, CFL players in all time when TSN had run a story on that a few years ago. However, what he was able to accomplish in the league, some of the records that he has in the league, uh, are things that stand up to this day. And again, that is something that we are going to get into a little bit later in tonight's program. But to further discuss the CFL, I'm going to be bringing on uh, my other guest for tonight, Steve Milton. Now, Steve is a writer from the Hamilton Spectator. Like I said, he was the one who also wrote the Angelo Mosca book. Although he wrote it, it was obviously Angelo Mosca's words and and his story, and you're going to hear a lot about that from Steve Milton. I don't want to uh, diminish uh, that part of it as all. But kind of before we get into that, sticking with, you know, history and and the legacy of the CFL. I love the CFL. I'm sure there are many Canadians who feel just like me. I, I can't tell you how many nights uh, I spent <laughs> during my life uh, you know, listening to the Bombers on CJOB and Bob Irving with the call, although he's retired now. Uh, I can't tell you how many Grey Cups I've watched throughout the years, even going back to when they used to be on CBC as well. The history of the league and the league presentation and promotion in general is something that I wish uh, the CFL would do a lot uh, better of a job of. Uh, it's it's almost disappointing that a league with this many stories, with this much history, and with with this many tales to tell just never seems to be able to put it together in terms of promoting itself and and spreading the word and getting people interested. Like for myself, I'm 36. Well, maybe by the time you hear this recording, I'll be 37. But it's it's my generation, the generation that, you know, comes after me a little bit. And then, you know, now I have two kids who are going to be growing up around the CFL. I just wish the league would take its legacy, the legacy of its players, the legacy of the teams and the cities that these teams play in. More on that a little bit later. Um, a little bit more serious and would devote some time, energy, resources, money, whatever, into growing the history of the game, which in turn, I truly believe, would grow the game. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody from the CFL listened to this program uh, I think a lot of people would be surprised about uh, who and what types of individuals listen to this program. But if I could say one thing, I would just say, don't forget about the history. Don't forget about the things, the people, the events that make this league great. Because the way to grow this league, to grow the fan base, is to really embrace what it is that the CFL has been over gosh, its entire existence. So if I could implore anything, it would be that, you know, the CFL starts taking a good hard look at how they promote the league, how they promote their players, and more importantly, how they promote their teams. And uh, that includes present day, but, you know, more specifically, the history, the really impressive history of the league. 
Alright, I'm going to jump off my soapbox and we are going to jump into my conversation right away with Steve Milton. But before that, I'm going to play the induction audio from Angelo Mosca going into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. So I'm going to play this. It's going to get us fired up and revved up for my conversation with Steve Milton on the other side of this. Depending on the dictionary version, a photo of Angelo Mosca appears under the word tough. The origins of his infamous mean streak can be dated to a high school coach who demanded it. He used to hold the dummy and he had his fist along the side and he boom, pop you in the nose. And when the blood come up, that was the thing that he loved to see. If we ever did that today, I think you'd wind up in jail. Mosca garnered plenty of attention from colleges, eventually settling on the Fighting Irish. He had 60 scholarship offers and went and wind up going to the University of Notre Dame. At that time, it was the school, the school to go to. Following Notre Dame, Mosca followed departed Philadelphia Eagles coach Jim Trimble to Hamilton. The Ticats were the defending Grey Cup champs, but Big Ange learned quickly what it would take to make the team. I finally figured it out that they're only going to keep 11 Americans, and there was about 25 of us in camp. So I blew offside, and the, one of the players said to me, uh, Hey, you're offside. I said, Tell my daughter that. Uh, tell my daughter I'm offside. I, I was going to make that football team. Mosca was the only American rookie to crack the lineup, but after two seasons with the Ticats, he was traded to Ottawa and eventually Montreal. In 1962, he returned. Hamilton was a blue-collar town, and Mosca was the poster boy. I was tailor-made for this city. I knew the North End when I first got here. I knew every bootlegger in town, every crap game, every poker game. This was a, reminded me of the North End of Boston. Very, very homey to me. Teamed with John Barrow, the Ticats defensive line was a formidable force. Mosca began playing his best football. I played very physical and very tough, and uh, the head slap was still in, the elbow, clothesline. I was the real, I, I took advantage of every situation that was going physically. And a lot of guys didn't like the way I played, but I was doing everything that was legal. Ange was a CFL All-Star in 1963, but he will be forever associated with his infamous hit on BC Lions running back Willie Fleming in that year's Grey Cup. What I did to him was, it was one of those bang-bang plays. He was coming up the sideline like this, and here I come. I went over the top of him, caught the back of his head, and it, it knocked him out cold. The Ticats won the Grey Cup, and Mosca's reputation as the meanest player grew. 48 years later, a CFL alumni luncheon proved it was still hard for some to forget Angelo's playing style. That viral video rekindled his international celebrity, something that began at the height of his CFL career. Companies capitalized on his tough but endearing personality. He was featured in countless ads, and next to Pierre Trudeau, was the most recognizable person in the country. On the Gridiron, 
The Ticats dominated the 60s, appearing in six Grey Cups, winning three of them. By 1972, Angelo decided it would be his final year, and he couldn't have scripted it any better. His final CFL game would be the Grey Cup in Iverwind Stadium. Couldn't ask for a better day. I'll never forget the, with doing the warm-ups, and I looked down the end of the field, and over the door was thanks and goodbye, Angelo kind of touched my heart a little bit. Some great memories. The game came down to the wire. Ian Sunter kicked the game-winning field goal with no time left on the clock. Mosca retired a champion. I want to thank all of Canada for giving me the opportunity in this country. I love the Hamilton fans and I sure appreciate it. But it was a good ending to a pretty good career. Following football, Angelo took his reputation for being the meanest football player and applied it to wrestling. It was a natural fit. It is King Kong Mosca. King Kong Mosca. He is big, mean, and rough. Angelo Mosca was a tough player, but players like Angelo Mosca are tough to come by. My wife says to me, can they get any more dinners for you? I said, no, not really. I'm just very fortunate that, that uh, these things happen. The Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame welcomes Angelo Mosca. I'm really happy to be joined on the line all the way from Hamilton just in time to uh, cover the now on CFL season, uh, happy to be joined by Hamilton Spectator's own Steve Milton. Steve, how are you doing? I'm okay, Andy. How are you? It's, uh, yeah, you're, you're right to say that. Uh, who knew uh, whether we were going to be here or not? It was a little hard covering practices this week. We were just some of the writers and I and uh, journalists were talk, just talking about that now that our, our hearts weren't fully into it uh, because you thought it was going to be useless work uh, because it sure looked like... Uh, Thursday that we, you know, that there is going to be a strike uh, and or lockout, uh, and and, uh, and I'm glad it wasn't. I mean, I'm glad uh, cooler heads and saner heads prevailed, and I, I think uh, that says a lot here uh, that they were man managed to uh, each give a little bit here, and I'm not sure anybody got everything they want. I know there were some owners that aren't overly happy about a couple of things, and some players clearly aren't because given what they've tweeted. But here we are. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, as an outsider looking in and, and from the fan point of view, you know, we see, okay, CFL's on, they, they've got the deal, and then the players vote it down, and we're all kind of left in a state of shock, and then, you know, we're on the edge of our seats, because as you know, the Bombers and Edmonton played last night in, in preseason, so we were really here in Winnipeg sitting here going, okay, uh, you know, what's happening here? So I'm glad yeah. that everybody figured it out. Well, and, 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 and it did take some figuring out, for sure, because uh, there's always going to be issues in this league for the number of reasons that everybody there uh, in Manitoba certainly would know, uh, just given the nature. Everybody, You cannot compare this to the NHL, the NBA, or uh, Major League Baseball, and I've covered, uh, well, I've covered a lot of strike-slash-lockouts, in particularly in baseball and the NHL over the years. They're different because the union makeup is different and the league makeup is different. Uh, let's put aside the values that we're talking about here, the, 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 the you know the billion dollars versus yes. uh, hundreds of you know those kinds of things. But but there's no players' union like the Canadian Football Players Association because that by mandate of the rules, uh, 
they, they, they have sort of two different designations. There are no different designations in the other. They, they don't have a separate category for uh, European players and NHLPA, that kind of thing. They're all in the same thing. This is a, and it makes things a lot dicier than people understand. And we saw some of those fissures showing up a little bit during all of these talks. And of course, given uh, there's not many leagues where you have public ownership and private ownership, you could argue the NFL, but you could hardly say that just because Green Bay is is cooperatively owned, I mean they make billions of dollars, yeah. so it's, you know, they don't have to have car washes. Like yeah, yeah. Some of the publicly owned places in Canada, so that really makes it a lot more complicated than even those of us that try to study it every day can understand. One well, speaking of those of us who study it every day, obviously that brings us to why you're joining me on the conversation today sure. is is your knowledge, expertise, and, and everything that you deal with in terms of the CFL and naturally a big part of our conversation today is around Angela Mosca and the CFL. Not, not only that is also your connection writing the, uh, tell me to my face book with Angela Mosca as well. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's funny till you mentioned it because we've, we've, uh, you know, we've had to, in, in many ways, uh, have a staggered sense of grief with Angelo first when we found out that he was, you know that he that he that he that he had uh, dementia and was going to eventually pass. From then, when he did, we were unable to really uh, sort of mourn slash celebrate him publicly. Yes. Uh, and this is this is the first uh, he he died right uh, he did die right before the Great Cup. So there were there were we did were able to do some things there. Uh, but we we meaning the city. Um, there really hasn't been that public thing that anybody could go to. I went to his uh, family wake. There were, you know, it was restricted to family and, and you know, maybe a dozen people that knew him well uh, in the latter parts of his life. Um, so there, there hasn't been things done publicly here. But it, uh, yeah, it's a big piece missing. I'm, you know, you, I'm looking as you look at the press box here, which is very high up. Um, down in the one corner of the field, there are two flags, uh, only two. Uh, actually, they're not up today, so they, they will be, though. Uh, and there are only two flags. And one is uh, for Bernie Filoni, and the other is for Angelo Mosca. And uh, Bernie was uh, the best man at Angelo's uh, wedding to Helen. Oh, wow. It's his widow, yeah, so it's pretty neat. And, and uh, of course, I'm looking, I look the other way, and I look at the street that is... Uh, that is called Bernie Poloni Way in this part of uh, like like Winnipeg, we, we, it's 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 a district. Yeah, this is the, this is uh, colloquially called Stadium District or the Stadium Stadium uh, Precinct. Yes. And so so the streets have two names often, uh, and they're saving some names for other people eventually. But Bernie Poloni was the first one who had his name attached to uh, as an alternative uh, to uh, to the common name of the street as well. So. Now, obviously, uh, obviously, the Tiger Cats are a massive part of Hamilton, and yeah. and you can't really talk about the Hamilton Tiger Cats without talking about Angela Mosca. But you, you have a different perspective because you covered him in terms of the CFL, but then you have the personal connection with him as well yeah. during the autobiography of the book. I don't want to. I don't want to take too much credit for like I. By the time I started covering the league formally, Andy, uh, Angelo had retired. But there's no such thing as retirement with Angelo Mosca. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, he was still in that. You know, he, he he was totally involved, and you know, he really. He, I think there was a point there that he, he 
really would would have liked to have been commissioner and and uh he he uh to the tie cats credit and this is scott mitchell uh who was who was the ceo of the team he the, 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 the angelo was part of it and then he wasn't and then um bob young when he bought the team wanted to make sure angelo was and he commissioned scott mitchell eventually to make sure that that angelo felt like he was part of it not just by name and yes. he really was and he came to the practices a lot the last time i think uh, i think he came to one at the start of 2019 never got to a game in 2019 by then you know his, his illness had progressed pretty seriously and he wasn't able to come down but he wasn't one uh tr- practice i think they had to have their training camp here instead of the university where they normally do because as you as you recall uh uh no no it was no that's right it was during a practice um uh when they had moved here from training camp, and that was the last time. And his wife said he probably won't be at any games, and he was missed because it was like uh, it was it was like uh, well, like a king, uh, but a, but a retired king. It, it was just I mean, you still see Moscow sweaters, yes, and jerseys in the stands here. Well, you see lots of them, and and uh, he always liked this thing that, uh, and why he asked that I write his book was that I was writing a piece on him. Uh, I don't know the anniversary of his retirement or something like that, or and you know it's about him and and there was a line in it that he thought was very uh, indicative of him and the city, and it was something to the effect of, "It's very difficult to say where Hamilton stops and Angela Mosca begins." Yes, and and that sort of Venn diagram, the blurred lines between. Like, ask, I'll ask you this. Uh, because I, I think I'm dominating this conversation too much, but can you think of another athlete that is so? Uh, I, there are two or three in this country, uh, in the history, in my time, and I'm fairly old. That I say completely and utterly define the place that they are in. There's Canadian professional athletes. John Bellavo was one. Maurice Richard was another. Uh, for the two side types of Montreal, but really it was Maurice Richard. Yes. Uh, w- with Montreal and Angelo Mosca in Hamilton, and I, there may be one or two others. Uh, is there anybody else that comes close to when you see those pers- people? You think the city, and when you think the city and sport, and some and beyond sport. So you have to uh, you have to transcend sport. You can't be the best in the kind of things I'm asking about here. You can't just be the best athlete who ever played in that city. You have to be the one that that transcended sports in that city. And when you think of that city, you think of that person. So Montreal and the Rocket, and maybe the whole nation of Quebec, uh, if, you want to, if you want to call it a nation, and the Rocket, and and Angelo, and uh, and Hamilton. And he may not ever, be, he may not be the best player who ever played here, but he's the greatest who ever did. And, and he's he, and he's and he's kind of the player who exemplifies that Hamilton spirit. Like I've been to Hamilton quite a few times, and there's sure. there's a vibe in the city. It's it's a it's a you know get your steel toe boots on and, and go work hard. And that really you know if you want to put Angela Mosca in a box in, in terms of the gridiron, that was him. Well, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, you know what I uh, you know I don't know what your rules are, but I'm gonna if, if, if I've broken them, I'm sorry. But what this is is a hard ass town. Yes. Hard ass. And he was hard ass. And and 
remained hard ass. Uh, he he had a he had a softening uh, in his latter years. It was actually quite wonderful to see. And uh, you know that was part of his story. It's the very first part of the book. Once we get through his introduction and my introduction, the very first part of the book uh, introduces introduces it shocked me when we first started to talk he said i'm going to shock you and i'm thinking you know because i've written books before and everybody tells me i've got a story that you never heard before yeah. quite often i have heard stories <laughs> well when he told me I, I i'll never forget it we were sitting on these kind of vinyl uh, stools in his uh, lovely home his and helen's lovely home that sits on the uh, on the water west of here uh, close to very close to the welland canal so it's on lake ontario uh, by st Catharines, just right on this gorgeous and and uh I, I can still see it, and he had these high chairs uh, that were vinyl covered. And I, when he told me, I kind of, you know, how you get that kind of a bit of a shock, and your body goes a bit limp. Yes, it went limp enough. I couldn't. Uh, the I slipped because, uh, off the chair, wow. off the stool, right off the stool, because because you know I wasn't really hanging on. So, <laughs> <laughs> and and then that was a story that, of course, revealed yeah, which he had, he'd only told his own children a few. Oh, very few years earlier, very few years earlier. And, uh, and, uh, I don't think he ever, he never told any of his teammates. Some of them figured it out. And, uh, it, it, it it's quite a story. And, and if you want, we can talk about it. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit. And then I want, I want to also circle back to a bit of our Hamilton conversation as well. Sure. Right. So, uh, Angelo, uh, always had hid Angelo, uh, his father, uh, Angelo's, mother uh, was his father's second wife and uh, his father was a racist and his mother was was uh, uh, a mixed race so she was what in those days was called a mulatto her mother was black uh, an african-american of slave descent and uh, and uh, so he that the father was always ashamed of that so that means that Angelo uh, by definition, in those days, is black. It was black by, by definition. And where was he living? In Boston, on the outside of Boston, in, in Wathen, which was now kind of a gentrified place. I, when I was doing the book, I, and I found myself, uh, where were we? I was covering the Stanley Cup in 2011, Stanley Cup. With oh, the when, when the Bruins won it. Bruins, when the Bruins won it. And so uh, I thought, well, I'm here. So I drove out there, and it's quite gentrified. But in his time, it's basically, it was essentially uh, North Boston, which was a really, really tough area, uh, a very, very tough area. And uh, uh, you couldn't be, you couldn't be, he would have had no chance to play football, to play and do anything had he, had, had people known that he was black. Uh, he, and, but that, it wasn't him that hit it, it was his father. And he got beaten up many times to be put in his place and, and told that they were never to tell anybody because he didn't, the father didn't want to be embarrassed. Both parents drank heavily, very alcoholic. Uh, by the time he was at 12 years old, Angelo hated and uh, just sort of divorced himself from both parents, moved in with an aunt when he was about 13, didn't go to, uh, he, he was beat up quite a bit. His father used to say, if you tell anybody or if you uh, ever fight back or anything like that, I will put you, what they used to say, um, on the state, which meant to into an orphanage, which he Jeez. did with the previous children he had from a previous marriage. So always threatened to do that. So there were those two things. Plus his father hustled. He ran illegal card games, which uh, Angelo, and he admitted this in the book, and I'm not telling stories out of school, on, um, uh, he himself ran illegal card games here into his 60s. But he worked for his father in those games. 
started working there selling sandwiches uh, at, the, at, at these illegal card games in his garage that would always be getting busted um, when he was seven years old. So that's the life he was introduced to. He was, he was physically abused. He was emotionally abused. Alcoholic parents that didn't care. Well, there's stories in the book where all five of them would be sitting out in the car when they, uh, after coming home from shopping. Not even coming home for shopping, but the parents would stop in bars on the way home. I mean, these, this isn't an uncommon story. But it's an uncommon story for somebody to have reached eventually and to be able to overcome like yes. he did. And he was, uh, and it, you have to understand how good an athlete he was. He ran, he was in track. He was a pretty good basketball player. He was an outstanding football player. He, uh, he weighed 300 pounds and had a 24 inch waist, which is unbelievable. And, and he never said he was 300 pounds because. Uh, he always reported at 290 because people had this thing in their head of what 300 pounders were. He could, yeah. <laughs> like, if you look at his body when he first came here, some of those early shots uh, that, the, that the spectator would take at training camp. Uh, it, he was, it was, he was weight training. He taught, he, he did one of those things off the matchbook covers, you know, uh, where you see the 98 pound weakling, and then he gets sand kicked in his face, and then, and then comes back later because he's lifted weights. Well, he, that's what he did, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he got the idea off of a matchbook. Uh, it's way ahead of his time for, for those kinds of things. But when he was very young, all of those things contributed to who he was, Andy. He, uh, he was taught the value of a buck and, the, and that you had to have money and some kind of social standing, which meant being not black, uh, um, to, uh, to make it. So he had, he never told his, parents, his kids about it. And so his kids, therefore, share that heritage. And and uh, and finally, when he and Helen got together, and, and he'll tell, he says this in the book that Helen changed a lot of things, made him face his past. It was her that said, you have, when Bob Young suggested, you have to write your book because you have to tell the legacy. Yes, this will bring us back to Hamilton uh, because you're such a part of Hamilton, and he would he uh, you have to share that legacy and you have to get it out. She told me later that she felt he needed it as therapy. And several times during the book, he cried, which, of course, made me cry. You know, so, well, how could and, you not know, at that point? Have you ever seen a man that size cry with a face like that? I mean, I mean, everything about Angelo was oversized. I emphasize that a lot in the introduction to the book. Everything about him, his strengths, his weaknesses, his passions, his, uh, uh, his peccadillos, all of those things. He talks about his... You know, unfaithfulness to a previous wife. Very, uh, you know, it, it, it was amazing. And and to sit there and to be privy to a man of his age and his sort of, uh, he had a very thick skin, and he had to. And it, it, it went very, very, very deep. It, it because he felt he, you know, he just couldn't reveal things. He never even thought about too many things himself, and, or, and about his past and. Uh, all of those things to be part of a of his epiphany first of all, and then to do something about it, to change it, to make amends with the children, uh, to make amends, uh, try to make amends with everybody around him. I mean, it, it, not everybody responded positively, and of course, to that, but most people did. It was really amazing to see, and uh, he should be proud of himself, and of course, his wife should be very proud of herself. What's most eye-opening and certainly fascinating about what you just described is, is you know, in terms of the, the wrestling side of it, and obviously that's what this program kind of focuses on the majority of the time, but you always hear about, you know, kayfabe and guys got to protect their character and they got to protect their history. And so when you 
oftentimes when you get into the biographical nature of of wrestlers there's still a lot they will never give up or they'll still they'll give the the same story that they've given for years and years and years right which you can demonstrably prove is is not correct but to to hear you describe your state when when writing the book and hearing these stories and i can hear the emotion in your voice talking about it it's man that it hits hits a certain way right and the, the, and, and the wrestling thing of course went on for a long i mean angelo was a pretty big star in wrestling you know i mean uh when they had the angelo mosca night here which you know there was an acknowledgement obviously we'd written in the paper that angelo had dementia and that you know wasn't going to get better they had while he could still appreciate it what they called uh, still angelo night and uh, rick flair came up for it yes you know, that's right like, yes and right and, and people forget that he i think who had that plane accident and that yeah it was flair it was flair and broke his back right which put angelo into the angelo kind of replaced him for a while uh, until he recovered and that put angelo into kind of the big time in wrestling and he started he started on the quebec circuit and the canadian circuit he's i think he started on the quebec circuit when he was with ottawa but the thing that really uh, and this applied directly to wrestling but applied every to everything too it, it, it applied to his uh finances and and, and I'll, I'll say what it was and uh i think many of the People, if, if you're younger, you won't remember the incident that originally started this because it happened in 1963. But everybody remembers seeing, and it happened right after we'd written the book. So we had to pull the book back and, and, and write an extra page on it when he and Joe Cap. Yes. At the, uh, that would have been the 2012 Grey Cup? No, 2011 Grey Cup. Yeah, it was uh, 11 because it was Bombers in BC, I believe. Right, right. NBC uh, had the, the dust up and ended up swinging canes and. Uh, uh, and they ended up on uh, Dr. Phil. I, I was walking through a, through a, a flea market with a friend, uh, and the phone rang on a Sunday afternoon, and this had happened on the Friday incident where they beat each other up, and, and, and of course the video of it had gone viral. Yes. And it was on all the TV stations, and and the uh, I pick up the phone, I didn't recognize it, and I don't normally answer, but it was from the States, and I thought, well, I'll just check what this is. Uh, and it was Dr. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he got my number. I said, well, do you think that... I said, well, I think Angelo would be all right uh, on there. Joe never ended up going on the show. Yeah. But it became... And I'll explain to your any of your younger listeners what that is was about. So back in 1963, um, the BC Lions were a very good football team. Joe Cap was the quarterback. Uh, the running back was a guy named Willie Fleming, who at that time was acknowledged as the best running back in perhaps the best player in the league that year. And, and, and uh, Vancouver had was fairly new to the league, about 10 years, had never won a great cup. And it was in BC, and it had a really good team. And uh, and Willie Fleming went, got hit by somebody on the sidelines, went down, and Angelo kind of flew over top him and caught him in the head as he went over. There was always said that he, Angelo always said that he was trying to get over top of him and just kind of caught him. And, uh, uh, and I remember his exact ex- explanation of it, but the place went crazy. And, uh, you know, everybody went uh, after the game, which Hamilton did win, because uh, BC, it wasn't just because BC didn't have Willie, Willie Fleming. Uh, Hamilton had a very good team. Um, and the, the uh, Joe Cap refused to shake his hand after the game. So this goes back to 1963. And so how many years later is that? 40 something years? Yes, right? and it's still bad blood. <laughs> these, these guys uh, had, had, and it, it was an incident whenever you thought of Angela Mosca, you thought of that incident. Well, 
the very next day, everybody called him the dirtiest player yes. in football. He embraced it because it, it fit in perfectly with the image of Hamilton. Hamilton was already considered that type of team, even before Angelo got here. That was a bit of their, that was kind of their mythology. They were tough people, but Angelo just, it, like, it was like amped up on, on whatever. It was just totally amped up. Uh, uh, he really enhanced that image because he, you know, it was always seen as a, somebody who was close to the line and many, many times crossed over, which he did. And he's a friend of mine. I'm not afraid to say that. He, you know, I would say it to his face. He crossed the line many, many times and, and perhaps too many times. And, and uh, but that's who he was. He was a very, everything about him was outsized. And, and uh, so he embraced that as the toughest man in football. That led to, re- that, that led to, of course, wrestling. Right? Right away, almost. Yeah. Right? So I mean, he was already doing a little. He was already doing a little bit, and I've forgotten the name of the promoter that's uh, in Montreal. Uh, long gone now. And, and but if you all the big promoting names uh, uh, up until including Vince, uh, all the way to the nineties, uh, he was involved with, and even his son son wrestled, as, as you know. And you know, the King Kong. He had a number of different names, but but that was that was how it affected his wrestling career. It gave him that image. Uh, he was a nice guy for a while, actually, but but uh, once he got became a bad guy, he was a pretty damn good bad guy, right? He was a pretty good pretty good heel, and uh, and he was different things in different regions. The way uh, wrestling was split up in those days, it was much more regional. Uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't sort of one tier versus another tier. Both of them national wrestling types of things. It was regional. Uh, and, and very big in, in the, whether it was the AWA or NWA or all of those ones, uh, WWE once it came along. Um, the the uh, so that was the wrestling part of it, but also on the financial part of it. So you embrace that image. Well, suddenly he was getting all of these ads for car companies and that. I mean, the Sheffield was big then. It was it yes, was as it big was as the huge. NHL. It was big. And, and and even in Toronto, like it, it there. I grew up in Toronto, and, and it, it, it the the Argos in the fifties and most of the sixties were just as big as the Leafs, and and uh, you, you couldn't say you know. In fact, at one point, the Argos I felt were a little ahead of the Leafs in, in popularity in the fifties. Well, yeah, especially but, when uh, they had the the greatest team that never won, right? That was that late sixties, I think. I want to say. Well, that was in, yeah, it was in the late sixties. Yeah. Yes. Well, we, if you want, you can go on about that because <laughs> because you, because, the, because Toronto's so weird. And I grew up there. I'm a Toronto native, and you know, I I went to all the I worked with all the Leafs uh, at a hockey school. I taught hockey at, at, when I was a kid as a teenager in the sixties, and they were all the guys that played on those all those teams. Well, they traded Frank Mahovlich in 1967, right after he'd been one of the very best players in the Stanley Cup. They traded him, and it, he ended up in Montreal two or three years later. So it wasn't the same. But that's their Babe Ruth trade. You've heard of the Babe Ruth trade? The uh, what's it called? The no, Curse of the no, Gambino, Nanette. I think, right? Curse of the Bambino, and it's also referred to as the No No Nanette trade. Yes, uh, they were because uh, the the investor, the Boston guy, wanted to invest in a play called No No Nanette. So to get the money, he traded Babe Ruth, who had just starred in the World Series. Uh, to the Yankees, and of course the Red Sox didn't win again for what eighty six years, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Well, you know it's not eighty six yet. Yeah, but, but if nobody, they're they're working their way there, <laughs> no, nobody looks at the Mahovlich thing, and it wasn't just that he was just uh, a flashy player. He just wasn't the type that Toronto players like more grinding type players. They never, they always thought he was lazy, but he was a fabulous player. The year he got, I think in his third year, he set the Leaf record by. Uh, 
40%. I think the previous record had been 37 goals, and he had 48. The next highest Leaf at 20. The next <laughs> highest player in the end. Right? So twice as good as anybody else. And uh, it just, but they, everybody liked the other players better. The players that looked like they were working hard. Yeah. You know, so uh, I've always said, that's the curse of Mahal, which, uh, but he's too nice a guy. And he ended up in Montreal where there are travels and won, won, won a couple of cups there. So, yeah. Right? So maybe three. <laughs> and a Hall of Famer. Uh, so anyways, um, so he, Angelo, having this image uh, of tough, toughness, all of these ads, and as I said, they were national ads. They weren't just for the local car dealership. They were for Buick or whatever, you know, uh, and he, he – uh, and they all went on his, uh, on his, uh, on his uh, toughness. You know, I'm the toughest man in the CFL. Says, use this soft toilet paper. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and the other one, the one that was really famous, and boy, this, I, I think whoever, I think it was Schick Razors, right? Yeah. And he would, you know, be about him being tough and show some, you know, you know, him being crazy and you know, bashing, you know, player that kind of thing, hitting hard, chasing people down. Yeah. And, uh, and then, then he would shave and he'd rub his face and how smooth it was. Like a baby, and he, and he, he says, you know, I'm the toughest guy, and, but I get this smooth, smooth shave. <laughs> and if you don't, and if you don't believe me, come and tell me to my face. Oh, I and love it. Get this snuff. So that's where the book title came from. And when I was a kid, so I'm probably 15 when he, uh, yeah, 14 when he hit Fleming. And of course, I'm an Argo fan growing up, and and hating hating Mosca, and uh, but it used to be even in Toronto, uh, in the it, that used to be a taunt, in our in, it became part of the lexicon of kids in those days. Tell me to my face, <laughs> tell me to my face. It was really it was part of the vocabulary for uh, for several several years. So so he used that image to to. Uh, to as I said earlier, he was taught had to learn by heart Scrabble because his parents took all his money. Said they were saving it for school, and time for him to be at school. And he said, "Send me some spending money." They they they'd long ago dragged that money away. And, uh, yeah, I know. So it, like, oh boy, it was just heartbreaking listening to him. And you 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 you're listening to a man in his sixties tell you this story, but really, what you have to do is see the eighteen year old boy or seventeen yes. year old boy he was when that was happening. Right. So and that changed a lot of things around. So he so that whole thing with the Willie Fleming thing, the wrestling thing came out of it. The, it, it at least the image from the wrestling, uh, it 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 was probably worth something to him on the football field as well. Andy, I mean, to, you know, if somebody thinks you're a bit, you know, over the edge, you know, you, they, they might give you a wide a wide berth yeah. at times, and then and then it, it helped him financially as well. So well, even uh, I can remember as a kid, you know, listening to you know. Bomber games uh, and Bob Irving would always. This was back when Hamilton used to play in uh, Iverwind Stadium, and he would call yeah. it Neverwind Stadium. He always would yeah. call it that because the Bombers would always get crushed, and then he would always bring up, you know, it's you know the ghost of Moscow is is there. It's it, it, it's you there, know, yeah. for for years and years as a, as a kid. So I'm I'm 36, but. So for you know my whole nineties, I that's all I ever heard. Never win stadium. The ghost is there. We're gonna go get creamed every every single time. And you time. know, Angelo Mosca, you're thirty six. So he finished playing twenty years before you became a fan. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's how 
big a thing it was. Yeah. So the ghost part of it is that it's absolutely true. And, and, uh, you know, he did, I think he made the town feel particularly at that time, a little better about itself because he was succeeding with this. Yes. Attitude. Uh, I wasn't here, uh, during the, those times, but, uh, I've spent a lot of time walking around town with him over the years and it was, you know, people still considered him kind of a god. He never, ever, he was a mean guy in a lot of ways, and he had a lot of flaws. But he never turned out a fan, never turned down an autograph request that I ever saw. And ne and even though I knew the value of a buck, if you, if you were doing something for kids, uh, particularly kids in need, uh, which, you know, he grew up as, uh, free. Always. Wow. He'd always come out making a play. Always. And, and, uh, you know, he'd, uh, you know, if he, unless he felt that the event was, say, being sponsored by, you know, Ford Motor Company, yes. he could afford it, he'd say, you know, but, but basically he'd show up and, and, uh, you know, he'd, he'd, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he has the most memorable face ever. I don't know if you've seen the book, Tom. Yes, I have. Yeah, uh, we, we, uh, the person who photographed, photographed it works and did the cover, uh, works for uh, Lulu.com, which was owned is owned by uh, Bob Young, and uh, also works for the Tie Cats. And as soon as she took that picture, I said, "We want so it, part of his face is a bit hidden in shadow because there's two parts to Angelo: yes. the sort of the, the sunny side and the dark side, and also the public side and the part that he hides." And uh, and and. You know, I feel privileged that he chose that book to to let everybody know. Uh, you know, and, and I think it, you know, I think he. It's hard to know what was in his mind, of course, at the end. But I think he would have died knowing that he'd done a lot of right things in his final 15, 20 years of his life, and and lots of good stuff, even when he was doing crazy stuff, Andy. Like, or, or not crazy is the wrong word, but, but, but stuff that you question, right? He, 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 he'll tell you, he had a ton of regrets, you know, he did, you know, lots of illegal stuff, including card games and all of those kinds of things. And, and, uh, you know, he, uh, his family, he, he, uh, he, he'll admit he wasn't a good father for many, many years, but boy, those kids today, I mean, you know, it, it, the loss that they felt, and that is an accomplishment as I mentioned near the top of the show, to turn that around at the latter part of life, because normally people don't do that, especially people cut from that kind of cloth that, that have uh, a very, you know, their, their narrative. And I think you made a really good point about particularly wrestling narratives. You know, I mean, wrestling's full of hard, hard, hard luck stories. And uh, you've seen that on some of the, you know, on the Revelation shows that we see. Um, and, and this was one. I mean, there's some great... Because it was a football book, uh, and I wasn't there for as much of the wrestling, so I couldn't talk. There aren't enough of the good wrestling stories uh, in that book. Uh, it was more, more football-oriented, but there there are some. I mean, there's some great stuff about Andre the Giant, you know, in the book, and and uh, um, and you know, talked about obviously McMahon and and uh, some of the other promoters and wrestling in the South. And you know, he 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 went to uh, University of Missouri. Uh, and remember going back to the fact that he's black and University of Missouri uh, recruited him not knowing that and and he's there and he's doing he was doing what was called passing some of the other recruits uh, were were uh, were visibly African-American and had to uh, be in a different place you know couldn't use the water fountains. oh yeah you know, segregation you know, at the time yes 
Well, you're talking, yeah, you're talking, you're talking when the lynchings were going on. Yes, yeah, still. You know, he was, he, he, I think he, uh, when did he go, that would have been in 56 or 57 or something, 56 probably, you know, I mean, that's, so he went there, he, well, and he, uh, and he decided not to end up at Missouri City, guy couldn't play there, so he ended up playing at Notre Dame, and was doing really well there, and I looked up some old newspaper clippings of, of, of uh, the coach at Notre Dame coming to Wolf and talking about how well Angelo was doing. Well, Angelo, of course, did Angelo some stuff, and he'll, he admitted this in the book, too. He ended up stealing some wallets <laughs> <laughs> and got kicked out, and then he ended up at, uh, at uh, where, Wyoming, and uh, then he ran into some bad guys there, too, and got involved in some tough stuff. So he's, you know, uh, but he, he also credits somebody that was an alumnus of Notre Dame for uh, getting him set up in Canada. And so he always felt this incredible gratitude to this country and this city in particular, but the country as a whole as well. I mean, I've often said this, and you have an awful lot of in and around Winnipeg, that of, of people I would call either that the Americans that came up here and discovered this country and decided to stay and make the country better and themselves better for being Canadians. I've often said they were more Canadian than many of us who grew up here. And I, I consider Ange Angelo one of those. Uh, um, the little general was another one. You've had a bunch in Winnipeg uh, over, over the years of players who just... Uh, Pinball Clemens is the latest great example of yes. that. Yes, he is. Uh, right? Uh, Orlando Steinauer is another one of current current people that way. And those are the ones just here. I'm sure there's some out there that I, I'm forgetting about right now, but it's, uh, it's all across the country. And uh, Angelo was one of those. And maybe... The, mo the best of those because not best but the but the but the, the most fervent of them because of what he a couple of things he battled I mean he was battling the whole race thing uh, and, and uh, racial identification but he was also uh, you know he he he'd done some things that he needed to be forgiven for and we kind of forgave him even though he continued to do some of them here <laughs> but I mean he was so much fun to be around. Like he was up all the, he was fun. He made things happen. And when you, he and Helen blended a very large family and those gatherings, uh, you know, I've, I actually only saw it at, at unfortunately his wake, but, but I heard about it all the time from both of them and from the kids, you know, particularly his son, Ange Jr. is a friend and, 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 uh, you know, about how, you know, the, all the grandkids gravitated towards him and, uh, you know, in the, in the latter years here, he was in a wheelchair with a cane, and uh, he didn't seem any smaller. <laughs> like, <it was> <laughs> <laughs> big, big man. So, it, uh, it, uh, yeah, he's going to be, you know, he lived an extremely full life, and I, heavy on the extreme, heavy on the full. Yes, you know, so, <laughs> both sides of it. <laughs> both sides, yeah. So, and and so I, I'm I'm glad that there's going to be a little bit more time uh, this year to celebrate his his legacy because as you said you know when he passed it was kind of then it's the Grey yeah. Cup and then it, it's 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 hard to uh, really dedicate any any substantive time you know at right. that and, point and, in time and, and yeah it's true and 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 uh, you know we when we had the Grey Cup the you know so you, you did some you know, the odd thing there but but uh, you know this. We, they toyed with it here a little bit, uh, I, I, doing something in and around because there's two Hall of Fame, there's two Hall of Fame nights here uh, this year, right? Because they had the, the the twenty and twenty 
one classes couldn't go in. So yes. 2021 are going in the night before the opener here, and then they're going to have their regular Hall of Fame class uh, for 2022 at the normal. The normal okay, good, good, good. Time good. later in the year, I, I think it's September or something. I don't know the date. Uh, those kinds of things. So they might do something on the day before, the day after. We have a lot of the players that might have played it uh, uh, against him. Uh, that, that, that could be, you know, because all ex Hall of Famers get to come, right? So. Or sorry, or, uh, all current living Hall of Famers, if they want to come, to come. Yes. So maybe, maybe, maybe something you know will happen with that. But uh, I think the family also doesn't want to take away from the, the 13 men who are getting in. Uh, I think it's all men, yes, that are getting in uh, uh, on opening night, the night before the opener, and the and the uh, six that are getting in, or seven uh, that are getting in uh, in the normal induction period uh, later in the year. So you don't want to take away from that. But we'll they'll find something. I'm not going to be involved other than they may ask me to say a word or two, but there are other people that, uh, you know, that we're actually we're closer. You know, I just uh, became identified with him because I ended up writing a lot about him uh, in the latter periods of his life. But uh, other period players, people knew him better. And there's a lot of people here that, that still around that watched him play and lived in, and died with him and John Barrow chasing people down. You know, I mean, <laughs> that was a terrifying twosome. Yes, you know, definitely. I, and you couldn't ask for two different types of people. And, and uh, Angela's quite hard on John in the book. But really, those two were identified with the team. I and mean, they had lots of great players, Bernie and Hal Patterson, and, you know, even going back to Vince Maz, all of those guys. I mean, they had all kinds of and, and, uh, uh, just tough, hard-nosed guys, every one of them. And they're all part of the community. But really, the defining, because it was a defensive team, this has always been, this, team, this town's always been about, Two things: uh, defense, defensive linemen, uh, but really is. It's, it's, I always call it a linebackers town, really. But but it, but but Barrow and and Mosca are more identified than probably anybody. Um, this latter era, we've had you know they've had a lot of success here in the last seven eight years. They haven't won the cup, but they've been there a lot. Yes. And 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 they've they've had a lot of players stay here for quite a while. I mean, so you've got you've got another crowd of them now. Uh, um, yeah, there's only one left, but I mean the the, the group that, and, and basically it's bank, it was Banks and uh, Speedy Banks and uh, uh, Simone Lawrence, and Simone's the only one left uh, uh, because also Masoli was one of those guys. Yes, so those, that's were, right. Those three guys were on this team for uh, eight years together. They played in three different homes. No. Two different home stadiums. They played that year on the road, which that's is right just too. Yeah, when they were waiting for Tim Hortons Field to be built, one of the most underwritten stories in the history of Canadian sport. They played their entire season on the road, and they played. They they had to they had to dress in the team headquarters. They fashioned a, a locker room in the team headquarters, and like Pee Wee hockey players or Adam hockey, they don't even do that now. <laughs> I mean, they did during the pandemic. Uh, but like, yeah, out of necessity, know, and carry their school. Take they they rented city buses and went over to McMaster to practice. And even even here, when when they first came to the stadium here, uh, I'm sitting at the stadium now. They uh, they they weren't allowed. You know, they weren't even sure when they were ever going to get into the to the stadium. And so it it uh, and they made the Great Cup, which is incredible. Playing at a, a makeshift. The fact that they got the uh, they put this money into Guelph to, you know, the, the, the Argos. It's kind of funny. I'm going to write about it this week because the Ticats are going back to play in Guelph for the first time since that year because that's where the training camp of the Argos are. And, of course, the Argos, they're not going to pay 
money for BMO Field BMO, to, yeah, draw, right. to, 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 to draw nobody yeah. for, for an exhibition game. So they're playing at the university. So it's going to be a lot of memories. Uh, I think there's only <laughs> two people involved that uh, that were on the team at the time, and that's uh, Steinauer and, and uh, who was the defensive coordinator at the time, and, and Simone Lawrence. So so it's going to be something. But to do that, Andy, I mean, it was incredible. And they, they, they like... It happened once in the NFL, but but the team got to practice, and that was the Chicago Bears. And I forget when that was when they were redoing Soldier Field. Remember that? And I think they went up and they played in uh, they played in Indiana. I don't know if they played at Notre Dame. I think they did, uh, but they only played their games there, right? They didn't practice. Yes. You know they got because they used to practice at Northeastern, so they continue to practice at Northeastern. Well, how about this one? Henry Burris was on both teams. Oh, that's that right year. too. <laughs> Right. How about that? That's unbelievable. And Burris will tell you, and he'll tell a story again because I wrote it when he got when he first got put into the Hall of Fame, but he never got inducted. So he'll get inducted here this time because I think he's the class of twenty. And and he said that team never got. He said that's that's a mythological year. There should be documentaries yes. on that. If, if that was a if that was a, an American team, Disney would have been calling. Oh yes, hundred you know, like, percent. Oh yeah, they'd be on a stamp. You know, and like there'd be all kinds of stuff going on. You know, we, oh, um, you know, that was so. But having been there, having to chronicle it every day with with the beat writer, we had a fabulous beat writer at the time, Drew Edwards, and and uh, chronicling that at the time, you realized how much went into that. I mean, the, and what they had to do. Every single thing was a hassle. Every single minute of every single day was a hassle for a whole year. So, uh, anyways, uh, that's the sidebar to what we're talking about. <laughs> and I mean, we we go into a whole diatribe of, of yeah. things that the CFL should yeah. be doing better, uh, in, I'm, including I'm that. So, <laughs> I'm gonna have to work uh, work here shortly. Uh, speaking of of that, uh, yes, I can uh, hear business is starting to pick up in in the press box there. Yeah, you can hear it behind me, right? So, yeah. <laughs> I guess so, I'll just I'll just leave you with one last question, well, if sure, I could. Sure. Uh, what are you looking forward to out of the Ticats this year, and where do you think yeah, they finish? Yeah, good point. Good point. Well, they're good enough to win the East, for sure. And when you get to the Great Cup, it's a toss-up, right? Yes. Uh, and they're good enough to win it. Um, barring types of injuries, they, uh, you could, they, could, they could field a team tomorrow without even thinking about it, knowing uh, the guys that could start, and they'd have too many starters. Yes. Uh, the guys that have started particularly. They've, they've, uh, they've done a pretty good job, uh, but we don't know what... Uh, the parts who aren't here, uh, what difference they'll make. Uh, having that second quarterback that you know is there in Mazzoli, um, their problem at the moment, believe, uh, you know, I mean, they obviously might be depth of quarterback. Matt Schultz can play. Um, but it's not the same as, I mean, they knew it. They said all last year, we're not going to see this again, having a 1A and a 1B. That's and that right, really, yeah. And, and people say they have that, but they don't. No, nobody this, in the league this, does. That was a true 1A, 1B. And, and, you know, it just was the way the contracts worked out. It was a really good job on the contracts by Sean Burke, who's now in Ottawa as the GM. Um, but I, I, I'm looking for them to threaten. Um, we'll just see how much, you know, not having speedy makes a difference. Uh, and the issue here is kicking. And so we'll see. They have Well, got, the issue uh, here is kicking as well, so I feel your pain there. It was. <laughs> it was. It was. And, you know, it was that was the only flaw in that club last year. And then, of course, they got the kicker, and, and Hamilton didn't. And what was the difference in the Great Cup? Yeah, there you go. Everybody says it was this, that, you know, this, that. I mean, it was a drop, not a drop ball, but a ball that should have been caught that should have gone, you know. You know, I mean, that was a fabulous Great Cup. I mean, if you're... If oh, you're, it was an uh, unbelievable Great Cup, uh, yes. You know, we'll look back on that one and... And uh, here, it's hard for people here to appreciate it. 
but to for them to have been part of it, I mean, to come down and the ball bounces, it should have been caught, and in my mind, it, at least at that level. But there were some kicking issues there, yes. and uh, there weren't any kicking. There weren't any kicking issues, and of course, Zach, who's a friend of mine, you know, and I, I love the guy, and and uh, you know, he just he finally found. It took him three quarters to find where that flaw. Out, we yeah. all knew. Everybody who watched Hamilton practice knew where the flaw in that defense was going to be, and so did Zach. But he couldn't. He couldn't exploit it till the fourth quarter but he did he, he, he found it and he exploited it and and good for him so well as a fan of the league I, i'm looking forward to seeing what dane evans is able to do for yeah. uh, for a full season uh hopefully not too much because obviously i'm still a homer <laughs> here but uh yeah sure. you know what I, I love i love everything that that hamilton brings to the league i think it's one of the greatest fan bases outside of my own naturally or maybe saskatchewan but just a great fan base and, and really a team that exemplifies the city and and i think you know that kind of draws to our earlier conversation you know does a player make the city does the city make the player does a team you know what i mean it it all kind of feeds into itself in hamilton they accelerated each other exactly i couldn't say it better myself all right well this has been an absolute pleasure steve thank you so much i'll let you get back to work and enjoy the game tonight and enjoy the uh, cfl season thanks bye Now, before we get into the statistics portion of tonight's episode, I'm going to play some more classic Angelo Mosca audio. Now, this comes from the aforementioned time when Angelo Mosca was on uh, Dr. Phil. It's kind of a fun uh, little segment, really just showing more of the range and personality of Big King Kong Mosca. You know, it's pretty crazy to think that, you know, this guy comes from such a troubled childhood, you know, continues that into the teens, you know, still get into trouble, but now, you know, really big into the sports, ends up being a professional football player, still has his hands kind of in the uh, dark side of things, and then where he winds up uh, towards the uh, later stages of his life, uh culminating obviously with the uh, book opportunity with uh, Steve Milton. So I think it's it's just another aspect to give a much more well-rounded look at Angelo Mosco. So we are going to uh, get into this audio on the other side. We are going to uh, hit you with a couple of statistics. Now normally, if you've listened to the back catalog of Grappling with Canada, I don't normally go uh, really into the statistics of individuals because a lot of the times it's it's uh, very dry. However, if there's any time to do it, I think that this episode is absolutely the perfect time to do it. So, now with that being said, we're going to play this classic audio and on the other side... A little bit of statistical history. Please enjoy. For 48 year old grudge between two football greats, Joe Cap and Angelo Muscat, these two came to blows at a Canadian Football League luncheon. The video of their fight has gone viral with over a million views. Now, here Cap and Muscat give us their play by play of the fight. Take a look. I greeted Joe Cap with Joe Baby. I haven't seen you in 48 years, and he's going to go. We were at a table, and he said it under his breath uh, to me. 
that you uh, were. We never conversed at all. We were supposed to be on the stage together. And so I just took flowers up. I offered it to him and uh, he cussed at me. Well, I'm pretty well noted for not taking any. Finally, he dangled right in my face and I took my cane and I whacked him. <laughs> I got a cane shot to my side of my head. I was in, intending on hitting Joe. Why should I lie about it? So obviously you defend yourself. He punched me and that's when I went down. And when I went down, he kicked me in the butt. Joe Cat must be holding a grudge against me. Workmanship! I think it's completely idiotic. Alright, well we invited both players to the show. Joe Cap said he didn't want to see this guy again. He, he didn't say no, he said hell no. Now, Angelo, the man with the cane and author of his new memoir, Tell It to My Face, Thanks, Joe is just holding a grudge. So welcome Canadian Football League Hall of Famer, Angelo Moskow. Uh, um, is this the weapon? It's the this, weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you, so you might retaliate. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you were pretty quick with that thing. So what? tell me what happened on stage. We were there for a reason. Yeah. For a dire straits program. We tried to raise money and funds. And I said, Joe, how you doing? He said, go yourself. One thing leads to another. Joe puts a flower in my face. And I told him... Okay. But before he stuck it in your face, didn't he offer it to you? And you told him to shove it up I told the him sun to, Yeah, I told him to stick it where it doesn't, where it will grow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then he stuck it in your face, right? Yeah. I guess that's what happened. I, you know... What's on tape? Oh, well, See, he offers it? Yeah, because say, I, got, I got tired of what was going on. We weren't there for the reason of putting a flower in my face. We were there to raise funds. Right. And you didn't expect him to be there? No, I didn't. It was the last thing I ever expected. And what they did was they re-showed the video of the play that happened in 1963 where I hit Willie Fleming. It had nothing to do with Joe Cap. Yeah. Well, we went deep into the archives, and we actually found the hit in question from 1963. Let's, let's take a look at this. He goes down. I come over the top. And then you come over the top of it. I, I haven't played as much football as you, but I've played a lot of football. It, it didn't seem to me to be a, a flagrant situation no, at all. No, it wasn't. It's, it just so happened that Angelo Mosca made the play. I have a pretty good reputation. You did so. have a reputation for walking the edge. Yes, I did, and that's the way I played the game. It's a ridiculous situation, but anyway, I've had a lot of fun. Uh, as you can see, I have a book here. This, this is a book about life, and I read it, by the way, and I thought it was a really good job. I thought Thank Steve you. Milton really yes. helped with this uh, as well. Why did you swing the cane? Why the cane? Why reaction? Yeah. I'm a reactionary type guy. Why am I standing up here arguing with this guy, wasting my time? Does he owe you an apology? I don't really care. You know, I don't have any regrets about anything. You don't have a lot of pent-up emotion about it. I don't have any grudge at all. I'm, I'm glad you came and talked about it. I'm sorry Joe didn't come and talk about it. I am sorry, it. too, because I think we could have done something with our Dire Straits program and helped out the guys who were not as 
well off as we are. I'm going to put a link to it on our website so if people want to contribute, they can. Hopefully we'll help raise a little bit more money too. I hope so. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Now, in terms of the statistical side of tonight's program, we're going to kick it off with our discussion about Angela Mosca's uh, professional wrestling career. So, from a career spanning from essentially 1960 to 1986 is what we're going to be focusing on right now. Now, a lot of people would just look at, you know, the territory he was in, the fact that, you know, for the vast majority of that time that he was still in uh, professional football as well. And maybe they would think that, you know, he'd have a few hundred matches, um, you know, maybe close to 500 in and around there. Those people would be completely wrong. Angela Mosca had over 1,400 total career matches. Not only that, he held multiple titles, including several in a, in a, not only that, he held several titles, including uh, many iterations of NWA championships. Uh, he also held the Stampede North American Heavyweight Championship, the WWC uh, Caribbean Heavyweight Championship, as well as the AWA uh, British Empire Heavyweight Championship. Now, in terms of his entire, now in terms of his total uh, number of title match wins, or title reigns, I should say, he had a total of 18 titles won over his entire professional wrestling career. Uh, that also includes uh, some tag team championships as well. But what's more impressive than any of that, I think, is his NWA Canadian Heavyweight Championship uh, title reign. This was obviously a big part of my conversation with AC, and even I didn't realize how long this reign was from 1982 until 1983. King Kong Mosca held the NWA Canadian Heavyweight Championship for 533 consecutive days. Think about that for a second. 533 consecutive days. Now, more impressive than that is in that time frame of 1982 to 1983, by my calculations, he wrestled 300 matches in that time frame. Really impressive, as well considering uh, that... It's not like he was, you know, 20 years old at that time. And it's not like he didn't just have an extended CFL career where he spent his whole life getting beat on and beating the hell out of other uh, CFL players. So I thought that that part of his story, statistically speaking, is uh, pretty damn impressive, all things considered. Now, in terms of the CFL side of things... He was a CFL All-Star in 1963 and in 1970. He was a CFL East All-Star in 1960, 1963, 65, 66, and 1970. He was a five-time Grey Cup champion. Uh, those years were 1960, 63, 65, 67, and the year that he retired... 
72, going out on top, which is absolutely incredible. Now, what's maybe even more impressive than all of that, considering what a punishing player he was, what a punishing position he played, and what a nasty, nasty player he was in the trenches, King Kong Mosca missed one game in his entire CFL career. Think about that for a second. This guy who was in the trenches day in, day out, you heard about uh, some of the trials and tribulations he went through just in terms of uh, football training. Never mind the fact that he was also, you know, moonlighting as a professional wrestler at, you know, during most of that time as well. He missed one game in his entire football career. Absolutely incredible. I mean, you, you you can't almost put into words how impressive that is when you consider everything else um, in, his, in his career's entirety. Super impressive. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that on August 25th of 2015, uh, the Tiger Cats retired Angela Mosca's number, number 68. So just another... Uh, accolade to put in the trophy case, if you will, of Angela Mosca. Also, uh, he went into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 1987. So, boy oh boy, I, again, I don't normally go into stats on these programs, but uh, I really felt like a lot of that was something that needed to be uh, brought to light and uh, expanded upon a little bit to kind of give you guys, once again, a lot more of the full story of Angela Mosca. Now, before we head to the finish of tonight's program, I'm going to play one more audio clip. And uh, on the other side, we're going to talk about uh, what's happening in, uh, in the future with this program, as well as a little bit of housekeeping and some things that uh, you guys can be looking forward to. So please enjoy this one last audio clip, and I'm going to see you guys on the other side as we uh, skip to the finish of tonight's program. Providence big enough for me, but not for Blackjack Mulligan and that fat-nosed kid that was Barry Windham and Dusty Rose. Mulligan, the difference between you and I when I was a kid, I got a pair of brass ducks. I didn't get no cow. My daddy was scared to whip me because I might like it. That's all I yell at Blackjack, Mulligan. Everywhere I go, there's pictures of him. But Mulligan, you saw how I handled myself in that street fight. I was no cowpoke. I wasn't branding cows when I was two years old. I was getting hubcaps and punching people out with the brass nuts that my dad gave me. So Mulligan, whether it's in Florida, Boston, <laughs> and every time I hear the word Boston, I think of the great street fights that I used to win. But the difference is, you should have whipped that kid's butt of yours a little bit better, because he's a small brat like yourself. And the big difference is, your daddy never gave you a whipping. But I'm the master of disaster. And I'm going to give that whipping 
to you, Blackjack Mulligan. And as furthermore, you think you come in here, you're going to clean up on people. Well, Mulligan, you and I have been down a lot of lonely roads. And this road, we're traveling together. Just remember, I'm the man in Florida who walks and talks and does exactly what he wants to do. You ask that snot-nosed kid, Barry Windham. That kid makes me sick right to the pit of my stomach. He's nothing but a spoiled brat. You keep giving him trucks, cars, planes. I give my kid nothing. I make him earn it. So, Mulligan, I'm going to make you earn it. I'm going to give you so many rights that you're going to be begging for a less. As we head to the finish of tonight's program, I just really wanted to again thank my two tremendous guests that I had on the program tonight. Uh, AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com, as well as Steve Milton from the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, gentlemen, it was my pleasure having you both on the program today, and uh, it was a lot of fun, and I really think that we have uh, opened some eyes to some lesser-known aspects of the Angela Mosca story. So I'm really happy uh, to have had both of you on, and uh, I really hope that you, the listeners at home, enjoyed the conversations that we had today. Once again, if this is your first time to Grappling with Canada, I would ask if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever the kids call it specifically, uh, if you could leave a five-star rating and a written review. Of note, if you leave a five-star rating and a written review, I will make sure that I read it on the next available podcast program. As well, there are some other ways to support the program, including the uh, direct donation function with uh, PayPal, as well as you can buy me a beer over at buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. Uh, everything that is donated towards the show goes directly back into the show. Uh, goes towards things like research material, uh, possibly getting some new equipment, all kinds of things like that. So anything that you guys donate really goes directly back into Grappling with Canada. And uh, obviously I would uh, give you guys a big shout out on the next available podcast as well. Also, you can check out the merchandise store for this podcast. Uh, grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com is where you can find all of the show merchandise. As well, as I'll note as I usually do, uh, all sales of the classic Grappling with Canada logo t-shirt, the one with the Canadian uh, Maple Leaf flag, uh, all proceeds of that are being donated to charity. So, uh, pick up some merch, check it out. There's, pro- there's probably a sale going on right now. There seems to be a sale, uh, all the time at the Grappling with Canada merchandise store. So you want to check that out. I also want to make mention of the sponsor of today's pro- podcast is Manscaped. You can go to manscaped.com. Uh, 20% off and free shipping can be all yours when you use the promo code GWC at checkout. Once again, manscaped.com for all of your manscaping needs. When you hit the checkout, type in code GWC for 20% off your entire order and everybody's favorite free shipping. 
Once again, you can also find this program on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash Six Sided Podcast is where you can find this. Even if you listen to this on the standard podcast feeds, uh, I would ask that you also go and throw a subscription on our YouTube page as we are dragging ourselves towards a thousand subscribers and every little bit helps. So once again, you can find that link as well in today's show notes. Now, I want to make mention of a couple of projects that are coming up. Obviously, Canada Day is just around the corner on July 1st. Boy, oh boy, we've got a special episode lined up for that one. A real uh, Canadian star. And I'm really looking forward to that episode. What else I'm looking forward to coming up is my follow-up conversation with Vance Nevada as we uh, circle back to the Uncontrolled Chaos book that he has coming out. So, if you have not heard part one of my conversation with Vance Nevada, I would suggest that you go back in the archives. I believe it was in March. But you can go back and listen to my conversation. No, it would have been April. Anyways, you can go back and listen to my conversation with Vance Nevada as we started laying the groundwork for his upcoming publication. Part two is going to be one where we're going to hit him with some questions from all of you. Uh, I've already received some tremendous questions. I would ask that you keep sending them in to sixsidepod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also shoot them to me on Twitter at six underscore podcast uh, you can leave me a note on the facebook page uh, facebook.com use that wonderful uh, pages search bar search for grappling with canada make sure you like that page as well or you can drop me a line on the canadian professional wrestling history facebook group uh, once again we're trying to round up a bunch of questions that we're going to hit Vast Nevada with, uh, unchained, uncut, uncensored. He's going to have no idea what's coming. Once again, I've already had some tremendous ones sent in to myself, uh, that I'm going to be saving and savoring and hitting Vast Nevada with, uh, on his next appearance on the Grappling with Canada program. As such, you can email me anytime at uh, sixsidepod at gmail.com. I read everything that you guys send otherwise. So, for myself, the tax man, for my tremendous guests that I had today, I just really want to thank each and every one of you for tuning into today's program because honestly, you guys could have been doing anything else in this wonderful world that we live in. But you made a choice to tune into this program. There are, you know, hundreds more every month that are finding this program. We are reaching more countries every month. And I'm absolutely honored that, uh, that you, the listener, would take the time to uh, listen to this program. Because, I'll be honest, I think it's really important what we're doing here. Uh, preserving some Canadian history, because uh, as I always say, uh, if it's not preserved, we're going to lose it to the sands of time, and that's not something that I'm keen on allowing to happen. So thank you, the listener, 
for tuning into this program. And you can do me one small favor. You're probably on your phone right now, or you're probably close to a computer, which means you're probably close to uh, social media and texting avenues, if you will. Go ahead and let your friends know that you listen to Grappling with Canada. Uh... You know, spread the word. Tell them how much fun you had with the show. Tell them you learned something. Help, <laughs> put me over. I don't know, but or tell them, tell them how good the guests were. More importantly, on the program today, and uh, spread the word of the show. It really helps me out, and I really, truly, and honestly appreciate uh, each and every one of you for again checking out the program. And for letting your friends and family know about what we're doing here as well. Because again, like I said, I think it's extremely important. And it's something that uh, we are going to continue. Especially coming into next month. So until then, once again, for myself, the Taxman. For my tremendous guests that I had on the program tonight. I will leave you all as I normally do. Take care of yourselves. And each other. Good night, everyone.